Rawnut researched real life stories. Hi guys, welcome to Inspirational Interviews, a super cool life stories platform where we showcase real life stories of people from all over the world. Bravehearts, famous or not, going out there doing their thing. These interviews are not staged, the conversations can go anywhere. What's your life story? Be inspired by these stories to create your beautiful life. With me, your host, Jen Rod. Hey guys, welcome back to Inspirational Interviews. So today's conversation is with Alan Richards. And actually, it's pronounced differently. It's I mean, not pronounced differently, but it's spelled differently. It's A-L-U-N, Alan Richards. Um, but what a super cool guy. I actually met him when I was looking at his house. So we're busy looking to buy a house at the moment. And we ended up in his house. And yeah, he's just the kind of guy that gets your attention because he's got crazy wild hair. And as you walk into his house, he's got this massive big like drum, which actually I didn't go into asking him about, which is what I wanted to, just to find out the origin of where this huge massive drum was from. But anyway, Alan is a is a creative and I love talking to creatives. They just they're one of my favorite conversations because uh, creatives have uh, generally, in my opinion and in my experience, um, they just have a fascinating outlook on life. And so, you know, you can talk about philosophy with them. You can go deep into, into life stories and, and the meaning behind things. And yeah, just generally, I get lost in conversations with creatives. So I'm really looking forward to, to moving on with Alan. Um, he is a uh, producer. Um, he produces music for films, for adverts, um, and for, yeah, for various other platforms also, and, and music. Um, but just a really cool, well-established, uh, successful producer, or should I say not producer, but actually composer. He'll kill me for saying that, actually composer. So yeah, we're going to hear Alan's story next, and I'm really looking forward to sharing this one with you. Before I do, guys, go to Instagram, find me there, inspirationalinterviews.com. I always say this because it's my favorite social platform. I just, I like the, you know, the tricks that it gives you that you can play around with on Instagram. So for me, I love Instagram. Obviously, it filters through onto Facebook and, you know, we have our channel on YouTube as well if you like looking at the face-to-face interviews. But go to Instagram and connect with me there. Make a comment and tell me you've been listening to the stories. Um, and, yeah, I'll respond straight away. I love connecting with you guys there. And also on the website, inspirationalinterviews.com, go find me there as well and subscribe because then you'll just receive these stories directly into your mailbox. And that's really about it. There's no spam. It's just, I mean, I don't even have time for for spam. Uh, So it's just once a week, a super cool life story in your mailbox. But guys, without any further ado, let's move on to Alan Richards. So yeah, let's, I mean, let's just go in. Alan Richards is your name. Yeah. Furthermore, I don't know anything about you other than your home and you have this massive drum as you walk into your house, which I loved and I want to know where it's from. But yeah, just tell, tell our listeners, you know, who you are in a nutshell to start. Yeah. Alan, spelt A-L-U-N, not yes. for any particular reason other than that. I know it's a, a Welsh spelling. Uh, there may be some Welsh blood way back. I know there's Cornwall and things like mm-hmm. that, but uh, not… Well, what, actually, I can see it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> The big Welsh curly hair, rugby player sort of thing. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a composer, film music composer, commercial music, basically media composer, mm-hmm. uh, studio engineer. I've run my own studios for… 
uh, well, since the early 90s. Um, I set up my company then, um, went through sort of some of the big studios initially right in the beginning, uh, working very closely with them, set up my own studios uh, called Cut and Paste Generation. And really just that's that's the first love of my life is my music. Um, mm. Being told I was humming before I could talk. I was in the <laughs> pram being pushed around humming yeah. and singing before before I could talk. Not that I'm a singer, but yeah, I make music. Then uh, yeah, that's that's the sort of professional or the my sort of core. Mm. Uh, and what else? What do you want? Uh, yeah. So okay, awesome. I mean, and don't so don't you sing or do you sing? Um, I've sung on a few things. I've sung. I've actually sung on a few ads and things. But I'm not a singer. I don't. I don't particularly. I'll I'll write and. Who knows? Maybe it's something I'll do in the future just for myself. You know, yeah, those little things yeah. now. But most of the things I've done where there's been singing involved, it's been writing for singers, for uh, whoever I've had uh, some celebrity singers in, local celebrity singers, um, you know, through uh, on some of the tracks I've had to do in the past. Yeah. Uh, Ricky Rick passed away last week, two weeks ago. Mm. So I've, I've worked with him in the past. You know, uh, Zolani from Flesh, Freshly Ground, I did a thing with her. You know, you're talking about doing things that mean something and that, and that, that's something maybe I've battled, not battled with, but I've mm. been thinking about a lot after mm. what I've gone through in the last three years or so. As a composer, I started, and was it was just the drive to compose and actually make my vocation, make my, my living out of writing music or working in sound and, and working yeah. in the sound sort of area. I started off, there was always the drama side and doing TV dramas or feature films and things, and the, the studios I was working in at the time, there was a lot of work going through for TV commercials, and because that was where the main money spin was, mm. um, the best or the better, the, the staff that could handle the deadlines and the pressure mm. of that, which was a lot higher than the other side, ended up working there. So very quickly, I ended up right in the beginning, in the early 90s, when I got this job, it's, it's all just you can look at your career and you can look at things that happen, how much in life is actually just luck and being right place, right time yeah. sort of thing. Um, and I got in there and there was a system called the Synclavia, which was a brand new, it was the first digital recording system mm -hmm. in the world, basically. It was, there was two. There was a Fairlight and, and Synclavia. And um, – a young guy going on, I read about, and, and there was no internet and that. You're reading magazines and following, and Peter Gabriel had just come out, and he'd he'd backed the Synclavia quite a lot and put yeah. Real World Studios together. And it was like, what does Peter Gabriel do again? I know Peter Gabriel's from Genesis, yes, uh, the yes. band Genesis, okay. and then he went and in the 80s he was massive. He was he did yeah. Sledgehammer and all those things, but in the early 80s he just he he built um, he did a lot of work with Africa. He set up studios called Real World Studios. Mm -hmm. um, I've read lots of things on that as well. He, it, it was, he called it. Gabriel's Folly because he he built the studios right on, in a in a warehouse right on the back end of a of a train line so oh, he had wow. massive problems soundproofing this whole thing yeah. and, and getting it done but he did a lot of things for uh, WOMAD um, and worked with Africa a lot he did mm. over that period he did a, a, a soundtrack for uh, uh, the movie Passion of the Christ mm -hmm. and that he used he went into obviously Morocco and North Africa and did a lot of that actual, was a really long film wasn't it it, it was were, it was, was a very arty film, film yeah, right? it, it well it was banned here it was banned here in yes, South Africa I, remember, yeah. I had to I, I think I ordered the soundtrack I got it on vinyl and I ordered the soundtrack through uh, Hillbrow Records back in like the mid 80s oh that thing. was the and illegal the, the well they had they had their normal store and then you could go underground and get some yes. other records and things I that heard were, about that as well, yeah. yeah. 
What, who, who were the other records that you, could, you, you had to get from there? There were street records at the time, which was, and there was Moolers, uh, who was involved with some of the nightclubs and things. Um, but, I mean, also the artists, because it was oh, also during the apartheid era. Oh, no, so. there was a whole lot. I, I think um, there was a lot. I mean, Rodriguez was definitely one of them. That's it. Yes. <laughs> because, you know why I know this? Because I had to, when I was in Amsterdam, I had to do, well, I didn't have to, but I was um, doing the the interviews for the ITFA Festival. Yeah. It's like the biggest documentary film festival in the world. And I had to present the best of ITFA. Yeah. And anyway, and they uh, they literally asked me to do it the day before. So I had no prep time. I was like thrown on the stage, a thousand people, <laughs> and I had to present the best of ITFA. And, and everyone was shouting, uh, Sugar Man, Sugar Man, where's Sugar Man? And um, there was a whole controversial thing about Sugar Man in, in that year of, yes, the, yeah. of the winnings. Anyway, so that's actually how I remember about yeah. the whole underground. Yeah, and obviously the South African concept. I, mean, I don't know if you've seen the documentary, The Searching for Sugar Man. So, so that's the one. Yes. That, that was yeah, the okay. one. Okay, so it was exactly. your doing, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, the fact that he was famous here and nowhere else in the well, world, they, no one even knew about him. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, my husband, who's Dutch, doesn't even know who this guy is, yeah. and he cannot believe, having now listened to the music, yeah. that, that wasn't. Anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so, um, okay, cool. So, but I mean, this is was your inspiration so, yeah, for this. So, yeah, I got in and then, it, 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 like I was saying, I'm, I'm going to go back to, uh, I, I kind of was funneled into and it was where the money was and was where I was working and I was doing commercials in those days were quite a different thing to now. They were, mm. they were mini features. We were doing, they, they actually had budgets that were, the same size or sometimes larger than feature film budgets. Really? Um, yeah. And that was locally. And, and in the, the mid-late 90s, early 2000s, the South African sort of TV commercial, when you say that, and uh, it was a global industry. It was mm. like the place to get things done but the globally. But com- the commercials in South Africa were always known to be one of the best commercials yes. in the world. Yeah. Huh? And and it was it was a really – it was – you know, for someone like me that, that I just loved music. I didn't have any formal training in music. We're going to um, find out yeah. the, like exactly how it all started. But it just yeah. went through, uh, you know, working there. I started running this digital studio just out of uh, position, like I say, partly luck. I was very good at what I did, but, I mean, that was part of it. But And I rose to the challenge and ran the studio and effectively worked with at that point, because it was the only digital studio in the country that mm. was actually privately owned or, or, you know, doing this sort of work. Um, we were doing, I think it was about 95% of all commercials that were getting broadcast was going through this, this particular room. And was so, this your? No, no, this was at, uh, this was at the Video Lab group. So okay. I was working at the Video Lab, Audio Lab at the time and working in this room. Very quickly, uh, I, over the space of a year or two, um, at the time, I think it, like when you're in your, your early mid twenties, a year or two feels like forever. And yes. I remember it feeling like forever, but I, I broke away and I actually worked with them and I set up my own studio then working. Um, like contracting yeah, to con- them. I hired rooms from them and I ran through mm. and they handled some invoicing for me and as an mm. agent sort of thing. And, and we worked like that and it worked really well for, for many years. So I was one of the first sort of trendsetters in that sort of model where yes. then after I did that, quite a few of the graphics guys and, and editing guys and things in the video lab set up their own companies okay. in the same sort of yeah. sort of structure. But I ran like that for, well, that's how I started off and, and, and stayed in that building for a good eight till the end of 99, 2000 when I moved out. And that was, that was not because I particularly wanted to move out. I was looking for bigger, more, better you space. Needed and bigger space. needed more space than that. Yeah. I'd grown to that point by the end of the, the nineties. I'd grown to have about, I think I had three studios I'd taken over, but now there, that's when I went into the, uh, surround sort of mixing thing. Um, and I needed a big, 
surround yeah. mixing room yeah. for feature films and so on. And uh, they'd actually bought another building at the time and another company, and they were building a new building for that. So that made sense for me to move in there. So I still had a sort of time with them. Yes. But uh, well, they needed you. Well, yeah, yeah, they did need me because we, we had discussions. <laughs> with them, but that's well, but, listen, <laughs> I mean, and and I love these studios, right? It's so impressive. I mean, like coming into your house, you and I was in such a hurry. We were late, mm. I think, and I literally had like. 20 minutes to see your house because I had to go fetch my boy. But I mean, when you walk in your house, there was a massive drum. <laughs> and then and then straight away, you see your your studio room. And I yeah. mean, I don't know what it is if it's just me, mm-hmm. but there's something so impressive about like this, the studio room. It's like a cockpit it's, also. It's, it's my private little place now. It's it's, it's quarter, less than quarter the size of hot, uh, than, than my old rooms and things. I, I ended up with six, seven big studio complex and things, and, you know, mm. in the thing. But the game has changed. The world has changed. The way we work has changed. This all actually started happening well before COVID, um, mm. although that actually has accelerated this whole thing, especially mm. in post-production and so on. But that room that I've got there is, yeah, it's it's really a, a distillation of all my best stuff over the years. Okay. Um, it's uh, I had a Dolby Atmos room before, which is the new uh, – as I said, I went, went into sound, so we started with the 5.1 – ProLogic surround sound mm, mixing mm. for film. Then it went into digital. Then I had Dolby Digital EX, which was the the five point one seven point one for uh, for uh, film. Are you losing our listeners? Yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I won't get to, <laughs> kidding, but basically, I've got this this great thing now is that um, I've got this Atmos room at home now, which yeah. is what Atmos that where you're bringing your listeners back is this whole you've heard of Apple spatial audio and everything. Yeah, um, Apple's pushing a big thing. It's on Tidal as well, and it's on Amazon. Mm. The three that are doing it, I'm sure Spotify and the rest. Well, will what it is effectively it's it's 360 degree sound it's a mm. uh, it's a it's a spatial um, experience generally designed in headphones but it's a it's an adaptation of the whole feature film sort of thing so we mix in what's called I'm not really using one no. 7.1.4 so you end up with a whole you've got ceiling speakers and surround speakers you've got a 7.1 setup mm. with uh, four four channels on the ceiling for home theater type mixing okay and you mix like that and you actually mix your music in complete surround so wow. from um, classical sort of things that we'll mix uh, actually I'm working on some stuff at the moment where we're recording in full Atmos, so we're actually mm. setting up the full 7.1.4 mic setup in the auditorium, and then a whole lot of another 20, 30 microphones individually on the on the orchestra. But you actually record that, and then you place that in the visual, in the audible sound space around you in yeah. the room, and it literally sounds like you're sitting in the audience listening to the orchestra. That's now that gets encoded down into a spatial mix that can get streamed to, and you can experience that on headphones. Wow. Um, so whether you're using the Apple. Beats and the Apple Pods Maxes or things yeah. on their headphones, or you just have normal headphones, you can hear a, a spatial mix. <laughs> so, you, so you're telling me all these things, the 3.1, 2.0, whatever. And I'm thinking, I called my husband this morning. I'm like, why aren't my AirPods working? Because he just bought me these AirPods when he went back to, to Amsterdam. So he goes, okay, well, are your AirPods on? So I said, yes, the green light's on. Okay, just go to your phone, check your phone. Um, anyway, little did I know that I needed my Bluetooth on to have. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> no, but anyway. So, Okay, my thing is getting a story out. So let's start mm. from like Alan's beginning. You said you were humming before you were even born. Yeah. So tell us where you were born, where you're from, like who's who's Alan from now? Okay, I was small. I was born in Joburg, Joburg Jen. And the only interesting thing, was well, it's actually quite interesting, is on the night I was born, um, and we found this out only when I was about, I was probably a teenager, 12, 13 mm. years old or so. And as a family outing, we went to the Joburg Planetarium and they had a 
a whole lot of photographs up, and there was a lot, a lot of UFOs, yeah, yeah, <laughs> of unidentified uh, sightings yeah. in South Africa. Okay, and um, can you still see them? No, no. I did, oh. This was back when I was. Mm. Yeah, this is forty years ago or so. Okay. You know? and we were just there, and we were looking at these photographs, and there was a photograph of an a UFO over the Joburg General at exactly the time I was born on the 9th of August. You're joking. No. So that's been an inside joke in the family Seriously? since then. Yeah. Not just the light in the sky. What time I mean, was it? Um, it was, geez, I don't know, it was something like 20 past nine or 21 minutes past nine at night or something. Wow. On 9th of August. And that was just completely coincidental. That's coincidental. I'm just saying that yeah, yeah. As, a, as an interesting fact. I mean, what's well, your interesting I mean, fact I'm about your birth? You, now, you said Welsh, but <laughs> <laughs> extraterrestrial yeah. could be yeah. 3.1.5 <laughs> if you listen to your language. So, yeah. so born there. Um, then, weirdly enough, I have quite a few memories of it. We, I actually grew up. I think shortly after I was born, I'm not too sure how shortly after, but uh, it was probably before my first birthday, mm. one to five, six years old, I actually grew up in Zambia. Oh, cool. Uh, my dad was stationed there running or setting up uh, with whatever uh, company his job was, he was working at the, t- at the time. What was he doing? He was a director at uh, Colgate Palmolive. So he was up there okay. just working. Soaps and yeah, things, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so we were up in Ndola and I grew up there and I went to – Nursery school there. Until what age, you said? Until six. Seven. Six, yeah. six when I came back for yeah. grade one here, which was also a bit of a curveball because I've actually got at home, I've got a, a the original, my report card from when I was like four years old or yeah. five years old. And I was writing cursive. I was doing, we, we'd, I'd, my favorite subject was dinosaurs. We're doing history and I had dinosaur books. That sounds about four we, years old. We were reading and <laughs> writing and everything. And then I had a big, I mean, I don't remember. I just hear from my folks and coming back and then going to grade one here. And it was suddenly like, no, 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 you've got to start learning how to write again and read again. So that was not having to. So I was being told, no, you're not allowed to read these books. You have to read Fun with Dick and Jane sort of thing again. Sounds like the Matilda. And it just shut me off. It was like, I'm not enjoying this anymore, you know. Um, not That's the, actually incredible, uh, right? It was just, I think it was just a different era. You know, you were at uh, the very colonial-based schools at the time and things, mm. and it was just uh, uh, regimental. And it was mm. like, this is what you do. This is how you you go through it. It was no like, oh, you're at this level. We can we can adjust for yeah. it. It's, everyone toes a line and does the same thing. So, yeah, it, it didn't affect my, my schoolwork. It was fine. But I did um, – and I suppose I just carried on reading and everything at home, at uh, you know, doing what I wanted to do there. But, um, do you think that that had an impact on your – your, um, your your music, the, the, your interest in music, or your you know what I mean. The, I don't know. All I know is that um, I remember clearly all the, all those very early formative years, three, four, five years old. Mm. I can remember um, three year old, three years old, sitting in Zambia, and I can I can picture the sitting at the, yeah. at the kitchen table there. Um, Climbing the avo trees, we had avo trees in the garden and that, and lived on avos. But I remember Simon and Garfunkel playing, or Joan, uh, Joni Mitchell, or whatever oh, that yeah. my mum was listening to at the time. My mum was actually a nursery school teacher, so I think she—I don't know if she taught me, but she was teaching at the school that, yeah. that we were there. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's this. I have very um, 
my my brain remembers music as a recording. I, I can yeah, hear absolutely everything as a recording in my head when I when I hear it. So, um, and that's sort of how I learned to play music as well. And and whatever uh, I did, I, I dabbled in and I went to a few lessons in in reading music and that. But it was really something that didn't come naturally to me. It was a case of I would sit there and and be playing and trying to. But as soon as I played through the thing once. And figured out that it was like there's the recording in my head, and then I could just play it. it was, oh my god, I so, envy people like um, you. What a gift! Yeah, it, it, not not like that in the sense that you know there's still also that mechanical the the, the learning mm. learning notes and where to play them. That 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 you never stop. It gets better and better mm. if you continually play mm. and practice throughout your life. It's it's something that that's really good. And then all the nuances of music, arranging and putting it down together, which gets back to like I said in the career. Working in, in commercials and that was such a fast turnover. I was sometimes doing three different projects a day. And I'd be doing mariachi band in the morning yeah. and I'd be doing a classical thing midday and I'd be doing heavy hard rock or something in the evening. So you were doing all these different genres. And every time you do it, you, it's weird, not weird. It's, 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 you can picture it as natural. Mm. There's this common thread. Music is music. It's yeah. how you arrange it and put it out. So, yeah. so you ended up fusion sort of things. You could actually take these sort of chord progressions and lines and things that you're doing in heavy metal yes. and suddenly put them into a classical piece yes. or into a mariachi band. And you get a, a fusion of like you're getting this Western hard rock in mariachi music or yes. the other way around and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, agencies and commercial guys really liked that at the time because it, it started really mixing up the mm. thing and you, and you started getting, well, we're doing this. It's got this weird sort of effect on it. And I mean, I remember doing a, a Captain Morgan ad where, and that's one I actually sang on in the end. Um, can we still hear it on YouTube? Yeah, it's on YouTube. It's on, on my site. They're so, all on my site. Well, most of them. All what the is your site? Stuff. So people can go oh, to it. Okay. It's, it's not a very – because it was created before the – cut and paste generation. So it's cut and paste dash generation.com. Cut and paste dash generation.com. Yes, okay, cool. So it's a long one. Yeah. I know it's yeah. Not, okay, but um, listen, yeah. so let's now quickly go back because I want to I yeah, picture you, Alan as me. a child. So, <laughs> okay, but, you know, just to go back to what you were saying, um, you know, you grew up there till you were six. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, I, so I grew up on a farm till I was six. Mm-hmm. Those, those first six years are like such a sort of a base mm-hmm. of your life, you know, mm-hmm. whatever your experience is in life, you know, yeah. it, it has a huge impact. Yeah. Um, so then you came to Joburg. Um, where did you go to school? I'm just curious. I went in, uh, we ended up in, uh, East Rand. So I okay. went to Farrier and then through to Benoni High when I was in, I was, I'm a Benoni High boy. I was yeah. actually just chatting to my friend who's from Benoni. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't live there anymore, but she also grew up or in Benoni. You speak to anyone, someone knows someone who comes from Benoni. <laughs> <laughs> True. Okay. So grabbing, I mean, so anyway, so then you were based in Benoni. Yeah. So, so tell me about the, you know, your six till 18 year life experience. Um, very normal, just uh, is it? Yeah, I was good, uh, like a decent family. Absolutely, good, there good was home. no, there was no trauma, <clears> nothing. <throat> I mean, also very sheltered. I think to almost, almost too sheltered because mm-hmm. um, also that era in the in the eight, whoops, sorry, in the eighties, whatever. Um, growing up there, if you were in a sheltered sort of thing like Benoni, and there was no issues, the the some of the movie and some of the content you were getting that was starting to come through from from the states or from wherever yes. or Europe or whatever seemed so foreign to you. Mm. It was just like there was you know there was no real drug culture or anything at the time. There was nothing. It, it, it seemed like mm. a completely different world. Mm. Um, like I say, that was my sort of upbringing, very normal, very based. Uh, no real issues there. Um, I did start. There were okay. What happened in? And you can see the, the regimental sort of thing. When I did get to high school, and yeah. I landed up in high school. Um, 
I remember uh, we were quite independent, so I rode my bike to school on my first day, stand at six and things. I'd be riding to school for the whole of the anyway. Rocked up there and walked in the gate, and it was what was 1981, 82, somewhere around there. Mm. And um, so George Michael had just permed his hair. Yeah. <laughs> and I walked in with curly hair. So the next thing, first day of, of high school, I was like sig- sidelined off and taken to the office and like, why have you permed your hair? And I was like, uh, Evan, this is just, no, and they didn't believe me. And that was it. From that day onwards, my entire high school career, it was like I was in trouble for my hair because it was either curly or too long or it was curly. Yeah. And I was yeah. just, uh, you say, in those days, you've got Jackson every, every you know, second week or every and week. And a jack Thursday. for all our foreign listeners because yes. yes. it's, it's, it's in South Corporal Africa. punishment. Yeah, you got a hiding on yeah. your bum. Yeah, yeah. And, um so at school. At school. Yeah. And then uh, but you, if you got six, you were allowed to go home. So you never ever got six. You got up to five. <laughs> Cheeky buggers, eh? Yes. Yeah. And um, and the girls got it on their hands. Got on their hands, yeah. yeah. And you had, I mean, those, you had to, if they were really good, you had to kneel down. The girls had to kneel down and their dress had to touch the ground. Yes. Uh, if, it, if it came above the knee, that was it. You got, <laughs> well, times have changed. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, so like I say, it was normal for the peri- for the time, yeah. and uh, went through did matric, did that. Uh, but over that period in in there, I was definitely starting. I, I still loved my music. I um, really started pushing me, so I started. I ran a, a little DJ, a mobile DJ sort of thing from school. Uh, from school, uh, yeah. So while I was in standards. Probably started in about standard seven, standard eight. Which That's is about what, 14, 15 yeah. years old, 16. I started yeah. running a little uh, mobile disco yeah. and uh, did parties, with, obviously with friends, and it became a bit of more of a business thing. Yeah. And yeah. I was just using that to fund buying my passion, buying, buying my music, buying my records and building yeah. up my music collection. Okay, um, so so – did you play sports at school? I did, but it was also – yeah, but it was always – for me, it's always been individual sports, squash, tennis, yes. things like that. Yes. Um, I mean, played soccer uh, socially, but not in the, the, the clubs or mm. leagues. So or not, like the, not the team sports. Not the team the... sports. And it wasn't even – it was just naturally what I went – what I was part of. It, yeah. uh, I was much more of a – I've always been. And that's a composer's mindset. You sit there and you write <laughs> – Everything you control, I'll get to it, control freak. You sit and you control everything that you're putting out, you know. Um, So when you would come home from school, what what does Alan do? Is his mom there? Is she working? What is uh, your no, life? no. She was she was at home. Did you have siblings? Um, do you? Have I siblings? do have siblings. I've got uh, two brothers. At that stage, only one brother because my my youngest youngest brother was, was born when I was like sixteen, I think. So mm, wow. Yeah. Um, but uh, you're the oldest. I'm the oldest. Okay. Yeah. So it's me, my younger brother, who's about two years younger than me, and then the uh, Jamie, who's way 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 back. Yeah. yeah the late lamb. Uh, yeah. And, um, yeah, so like I say, normal sort of upbringing there, had a nice little house, had pools, so you had friends around, had mm. friends in the area, in the suburb and that sort of thing. So it'd be a case of, you know, normal sort of, it's that whole, if you remember the Afrikaans and not that, uh, you know, there was trumpy and things like that. It's kids at school and you go home and you, you, you get nagged to and you know you've got to do your homework, but you don't really and you make a plan and you go out. And, and I remember it was a whole area of roller skating. Michael Jackson had just come out with it. Everyone was trying to go. And then it was what Frankie goes to Hollywood. Everyone had to have the big relaxed t-shirt and everything and and we didn't I'd, uh, my folks were never into they never really chased or, or got any of that sort of broad stuff us. i remember yeah. it was like you know, we'd buy a white t-shirt and 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 do the art print whatever right relax on it and things like that for, <laughs> to, get, to get our own sort of version of the, the fashion at the time yeah yeah but it was all uh you know riding bikes bmx's and uh you know just just 
having fun, really, yeah. growing up like that. Yeah. It was a lot of outside. It was uh, roller skating and riding bikes and yes. playing soccer, getting yeah. together with a lot of mates and going playing in the field and that sort of thing. So so, so in terms of friends, you were also – you had mates. You were – Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so no one was put off by the curly hair or ostracized you? Or? No, no. We were all in the same boat. Where I had curly hair, someone else had something else wrong with them. You all ended up getting jacks at some point for something. <laughs> it was like not a – there was no – yeah, there was no favoritism on that front. Yeah. yeah. Um, no. But tell me something that – what you just said there, right? That's interesting. Like you said, no, where I had curly hair, someone had this, someone had that. Yeah. It's interesting because that's your mindset, because yeah. some people don't have that mindset. Some people would be like, oh, my God, I've been, I've been cornered out that I've got curly hair. And they mm. sort of – they adopt a more sort of victimized mindset, whereas I can imagine that this has played in your – also your success in life. Mm. Do you like did your parents teach you this, this notion of uh, believing in yourself? Did, did you always believe in yourself? Um, I've always been – Pretty self-confident that way. I do know, if I think of it, when you mentioned the curly hair now, I was frustrated growing up, probably 13, 14, 15 years old. The the big style at the time was was dead straight, Le Mans, sort of like, you know, straight hair and things like, like that. The, yeah, the, the, the whole Mohican thing and yes. all of that. Not that you could have that in Brony High. Who, who was the guy that had that also? Man, there was a… Um, what was his name? Zig Zig Sputnik was the, the, <laughs> the one that spring to mind where they, it was all false hair. But, yeah. but it was the, the, the look and the feel. So the curly hair definitely didn't fit in with the fashion at the time. And I remember, you know, there was definitely times I felt like a little bit out, like I wish I could get my hair like this and, mm. and not that we had, there was never, you didn't, you know, there was no internet. You didn't know about straighteners or anything like that. And, and I never even tried to. It was, wasn't an optional sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but what I did try and do is I needed my hair longer than was allowed just to let it look sort of natural, yes. you know. Yes. Um, and well, what I felt comfortable in. And in the end, that sort of played in my thing because whether I had short hair or long hair, I ended up getting jacks because my hair was curly. So it didn't matter if I had long hair. So I started growing my hair and I was in trouble for that. But um, when I say long, it wasn't long by sort of like today's standards mm. or anything like that. No, but it's interesting. It's 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 nice to hear that you had that. I mean, mm. you've seen my husband. He's curly mm. as he's mm. just as curly as you. And yeah. my little boy is exactly the same. And I'm not actually going to send him to any schools that make him cut his hair. No, definitely. You know not. what I mean? I'm like self like why hair? Everyone is the same. Well, you have you got your you talk about. It's just like I said. It's what I'm comfortable in. I've got I've got long hair at this age now, and I've never cut. Well, I'll tell you. It's who I'll you tell are. Tell me when I've cut it. Yeah, I had to have it cut. Uh, I grew it in school, and I grew it really long uh, when I when I got out of school yes. straight away, and it was awesome. I look back at it, and it was like, but it was like almost this afro that it had gotten because it was <laughs> young and thick and everything. Um, and then I went to the army because I was in conscription uh, still. I was like lost, but yeah. they purposely so got into the army, and I ended up going all around the country because I, I I applied to go into the film unit, mm. and I was told just keep your head down, don't don't like. Uh, put your name up for anything because you'll get siphoned off and put into another barracks or something. So just keep quiet. So I ended up going all around this whole about two weeks traveling around the country and the, and the take at the intake, what they call it. And then I ended up in Volfus Bay in Namibia at the, the base there in the middle of the desert. And we pulled out and I still now had long curly hair and they shaved it down the middle and they left the size. 
<laughs> for two weeks, I ran around the desert. Was that like an initiation? It was an initiation. It was just like, oh, you want to have long hair? We'll do that. So I did that. So that was that was the first time I cut my hair, which I'll say was not the most pleasant period of my life. Was the army? Was was? I, it, it's just a mindset. Some guys really love that sort of control and discipline over them. I really it was it's not me at all i mm. couldn't wait to get out and 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 you know mm. this is something i had to do which is interesting you like control when you're in control and then it's <laughs> and then and then you're like a freak yeah of nature yes but you don't like to be in someone to be in control when i of say you. control yeah you know, the control is over the things i'm putting out i don't control other people mm. I'm, I'm i'm controlling yes. my creative outlet and i like to have full control over that um Maybe that's also partly what I was doing. You know, when I was writing for uh, and writing piano pieces or whatever music, I needed to have full control of it. So when I had to make a change for a client, mm. I could change it easily. Mm. I wasn't relying on, on other people so much. Yeah, but also when you put a piece out like that, it's yours, right? Yes. It's, oh, yeah. you, it's your signature Which is, and then you want to own it. It's a, it's a very interesting thing to try and learn how to handle that and that's also a very distinctive thing of why certain people can can do what I, what I did and other people can't I had lots of guys coming in to mentor under me or try interns and things that wanted to be composers but for whatever reasons one mm. of the reasons a lot of them couldn't do it is because they were creating something that was special to them yes and then it, it literally you present it in a room where you've got agency creatives yeah. you've got um, client marketing people you've got clients themselves you sometimes have the accountants and absolutely everyone yeah. and everyone has a say yeah. and and can literally be down to someone just goes, I don't like that style of music, that genre. Yeah. And you've been briefed, you've been working on it for two weeks or something <clears throat> and it gets, and it gets ripped apart. It's like, yeah. I've had things where I've had crazy briefs when we're sitting in and I get told, can we make the music more yellow? You know, yeah. and you got to, you can't turn around and say you're an idiot or anything. You could go, okay. And try and get something out of that. Yeah. You go, okay. Do you mean something like this and, and take and put a positive spin on it? Yeah. Um, you also got, can't take it personally. This is your music, but in the end, I'm doing it. I'm creating a commission thing for a client. Yeah. yeah. So a lot, I've got, I've got a, 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 what we used to call a bottom drawer, but I've got an archive of music that I wrote for different projects, different uh, jobs yeah. that I call mistakes, as yes. in mistakes, mistakes. Yes, yes. And that's the mis cool. the mistake is actually like I always think in my head it's, it's the client's mistake because some of these pieces are maybe my best pieces of work wow. and I've reused them on other things and yeah. put them out or, or whatever. Um, I love that. So it's not a mistake. It's a mistake. Take, yeah. Well, is that your own thing or did you steal <laughs> it from No, somebody? I didn't steal it. I just, I just called it mistakes folder and then mistakes. But you see, that's what I'm saying about you. you I've, I've picked that up in your story from like that's why I also love hearing the childhood stories right yeah. because you really hear the essence of someone and you hear like how they sort of came into the world but it's the same thing with your hair it's a it's you 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 look at it and you're like you said a word earlier I can't remember exactly what you said but it's not their fault you you've got to you've got to adjust you've got to um you've got to listen you've got to you know Relook at what they're trying to do. I just think that we um, we have these experiences as a child that also mold us. And mm. such a simple thing like your hair. Mm. I don't know why, but I just well the hair. Okay, so the last thing the only, I had it cut in the army, and yeah. then it grew and grew and grew, and then I cut it on September the eleventh, two thousand one, nine eleven. 
just before like, the just before the planes. That morning, I woke up and I said, "I'm tired of this. I need to be more grown up." Let me and I shaved it. I shaved down on to September like, 11. And then an hour after I shaved it, buildings fell down, and I had, I had actually at that point uh, in my business, I had I think Virgin Atlantic, I had um, British Airways, I had all these Airways jobs booked in for the next two, three months. And they all just cancelled, cancelled, cancelled. And all the bank jobs I had cancelled, cancelled. So suddenly for the first time in sort of my professional career, I had this big deluge of cancellations. And the next two, three months were really difficult to try and – because no, obviously marketing budgets, everyone just went, what's going on in the world? And sort of like what's happening now, I guess, you know, and hang back, don't spend. And and all these things were cancelled. And and I made a joke from them. Because also then what happened is I, I landed up at work with whatever work I was doing. And I had clients coming and looking at me. And they didn't even recognize me. Yeah. And they're going like, no, you don't look. And I could see their, their, their confidence in me as Changed. this crazy composer. It was suddenly like he's not the crazy composer anymore. Mm. And their sort of the interaction. It's interesting that, huh? So I, I went, that's it. My hair is, my, is me. And exactly. when your mom, my mom actually told me, she doesn't like me with a short hair. And when your own mother tells you she doesn't mm. like me with a haircut, then you know. But um, no, but you know, I I, 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 get, I don't know. I always every interview for me has has there's something in every interview, and for some reason, I don't know why we're talking about your hair a lot. But uh, I, yeah. but it, but it's a feeling. I'm just going with the okay. feeling. It's yeah. not. But you can see how important it's played a yeah. role in your life, and also how, as I said. You know, you were you were isolated. You were you were you got jacks as you call them. You mm. know, wax on the backside from mm-hmm. you know at school because of your hair. Like these are the things that have also molded you to be that guy who, when you're in the meeting and the and the client says, "Oh, I want more yellow," mm. you're like, "Okay, I'll give you more yellow," mm. because you. So I'm just, where did you get this grit from? It's partly just there, and it's partly. Um, I'm creative, but I'm very what's the word, pragmatic or, or or realistic about a situation. And and like I said, this was my job. I I I would take the 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 criticism and the the strain or whatever of of presenting my work and having it critted mm. um, because in the end, actually, the other side of that is that. When it's critted and, and, and you know, everything you put through is critted and, and it's, there's, there's little tricks and things I'll tell you we, we, we got through in the end that you learn through the, the process. But, yeah. um, when it actually goes and it, all that's, all that is forgotten when the thing goes and wins awards or, mm. or it's really respected in the industry or it really does well. And it's, and you, you finally see it on TV. Sometimes I'll look at the thing and go, you know, that wasn't exactly what I wanted to put forth. Sometimes those crits actually got me to put out something a lot better than I was actually initially yeah. presenting at the time. Um, it really, it, it's the creative process and it's always more than the sum of its parts and mm. you never really have control over the end output. Yeah. Um, you look at big feature films from anything from the top guys in Hollywood trying to, you know, make formula movies or things right down to the most independent little things or little ads. Sometimes you just hit this lightning in a bottle, this little yeah. strike. And I mean, that was always, it was always the brief is like clients would come and go, we need lightning in a bottle. And you go, well, we can't guarantee you get that, but we can do our best to, to try that. Yes. And there is certain things you can do that you learn through the career that you can actually guide that in a certain direction. Mm. Um, uh, and hopefully get there. But in the end, it's, it's public perception. It's how is it received by the general public? Yeah. How is it received by the marketplace, the mm. viewers, the, the people you're making it yeah. for? Yeah, and, and how is it telling the story yeah. that's supposed to be told? Yeah. yeah. And things can go wrong for anyone at any time. Uh, one of the, the ones, things I remember clearly is and how the whole industry changes. So in the late 90s, early two, just before 9-11, um, 
I was doing some ads for BMW and that, and they wanted to get, um, for one of the ads, they wanted to get Sting's uh, Fragile as mm-hmm. the soundtrack. And wow. we mixed the whole thing. And he just flatly refused. He says he doesn't put any of his music on commercials. Mm. And then he released early 2000, or in 2000 or so, he released yeah. Desert Rose, which had the, the Arabic sort of singing and yes. things like that. And then 9-11 happened. And the sales, not here so much, but obviously internationally uh, and globally, sales of that album <clears> tanked. And then Napster came out and everyone, the whole pirating thing came out and digital. Suddenly um, – Stings that that Desert Rose suddenly became his first one that he ever licensed for a for, for an ad, and wow. it was globally. It was Jaguar used the the Desert Rose as oh, a soundtrack really? in two thousand and two, and we ended up mixing that. So and you did that? No, I didn't. I didn't write it. We ended up mixing the local versions of it. So yes. yeah, I, no, I no, but I mean, you were the one who did that for Jaguar. Yes, yeah, yeah. So so those sort of that's why I say people's. Um, Perceptions, what they're willing to do, whether you sting or whether you unknown Alan Richards in whatever, you, your, your things change as the world changes. So the, the whole world changed suddenly to 2011, I mean, to wow. 2001. And, um, there you go. And, and it affected budgets as well. Because suddenly now, um, guys were charging millions of dollars or, you know, up into mm. a million dollars for a voiceover. We had, uh, what's his name? Um, also passed away now, James Bond, old uh, Sean Connery. Oh, yeah. He had to do a voice at one oh, point. Oh, it's so sad. To, I know. Yeah. I mean, you, you you forget that people pass away if they're yeah. not your loved, loved ones, yeah. you know. But, yeah, you forget that he passed and away. And he, he was charging huge amounts. I had an ad with Gene Hackman, who who was the voice on that. And got, do you meet these people? No, it was always, even those days, we were remote. Uh, he yeah. was in L.A. We you were had satellite links-ups in those, you know. Yeah. So it was internet-based, but it was uh, satellite you know, mm. sort of link-ups and things, and we did that. And record them and, and so on. Um, I mean, even the last few years, uh, we did a lot of what we call ADR, so dialogue replacement for um, for movies. So we ended up doing Black Panther and uh, Avengers, one of the Avengers, uh, Age of Ultron, I think. Mm. Um, I had Shalto Culp. Copley in the studio for Maleficent because he did all his ADR. In, he was in Joburg at the time, so yeah. we recorded him. And then when you're doing that, then then you're on the satellite link and you're talking to John Favreau producing Avengers and that sort of thing, and you're all in the studio mm. together. So there's been really great things like that, you know, through through yeah. my career. Yeah. Um, so okay. So yeah. now going back. Okay. So that's the guy you were. Um, at school, right? Mm. And you, you, you had your own disco music. I started going a radio on. station at Benoni High and got jacks for that as well because, as you were saying earlier on, I played, I think I played uh, Ghost Trade by Madness. Uh, and to me, it was just a beautiful piece of music. I didn't actually, that's one thing. I, I, I'm very musically driven. Yeah. And especially in my, my youth, I was very different to, uh, and I speak to uh, a lot of people now. It's very lyric driven. They, they like music because of the message and the lyrics and things. I almost never hear the lyrics. The, the lyrics end up being like a saxophone mm, or an instrument to me. Mm. It's just a tune and a melody. You're hearing. That, the, and I hear the music. Yeah. So I played this thing and it was all about apartheid and anti-apartheid and things. Oh. Like that. And so I got jacks on that as well. And then it was like, that's not allowed to be played sort of thing. And then I but, got to play But for the rest, the it school. was for the school though. You were allowed to play for the school, but it was oh, yes, selected so. music. Oh, yeah. And when I say radio station, it wasn't broadcast or anything like no, this. No, no, sure. It was just, it was on speakers over the field, you know, during break times. You'd but that's run in awesome. there. So I'd get, get out, of, out of class five minutes early to go and set up and quickly and then broadcast and yeah, have a yeah. little DJ thing. And I had a whole little group of them, different DJs every day of the week sort of thing. Yeah. And, but and so, I mean, and I actually, I did that as well, which is so interesting, right, that I'm having my own show. I mean, I also did this whole DJ thing at school as well. But this is this is what I want to know now is where so where in your timeline 
did you realize that you were musical? Where did this music start? I want to know where this started. When do you remember? There's, there's no date. I've been musical right from the beginning. And I, show me what that, like through the eyes of your mom, what would your mom say now? Jeez. Um, I don't know if, because we never had any musical instruments in the house. We, the, uh, my mom is creative. My dad is more normal sort of, mm. uh, not necessarily creative, but uh so we never had pianos. We never had anything mm. like that in the house. But I love that. I love hearing that because Back parents we, think they've got to have everything for their kids to give we them had, the best. we had music playing 100%. Okay. The radio was on 100% mm. of the time. And when I got to the point where I was starting to collect my own music, um, I I would sit when I was supposed to be doing my homework. I was probably sitting there and those days literally taping off the radio to build up my collection. Okay. I would – take what I've had in, in real funds that I'd earned and maybe be able to go and earn, uh, buy two or three albums yes. a month. But the rest of the things that I had to play at discos and things but like that. But when do you remember music I, for the I first time? I just kind of knew I was going to do that. Even then, even in primary school, I was I was the guy who had all the music. So if if any of the friends wanted a party or wanted to get some music, they came to me and said, have you got this track? And I said, if I didn't have it, I'll, I'll get it for you. Yeah. And I would go and find it because to me it was just like, oh, I'd find the next one and next one. Mm. So I was constantly putting the things together. I was already experimenting with with creating my own tracks okay. um, with no synthesizers, no instruments, nothing. I literally had two cassette decks mm. and a turntable and I'd saved up and got a beaten up old DJ mixer and I was mixing this with a microphone and actually just doing voice sort of sounds and things yeah. over it, mixing cassettes and things together to try and to try and make new music. And, so was that your first sort of experience of a of musical instrumentation? Music. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then then it was a case of weirdly enough, all my friends, one had an organ, one had a piano, one had a little okay. synthesizer, and I'd be going over to their houses and I'd go sit purposely just to go and sit in the room there and Did just play. Did you just put, teach yourself? Yeah. I would, I'd, there's, a, there's a great song. I've just got it here and, I, and it'll be simple one finger playing originally melody line, melody line, just putting it down, then, then learning a little bit. Then I'd go get a book and I'd got a, a book for Christmas or something on like how to play, you know, pop keyboards or something and go through that and learning chords and, and mm. things like that. Um, and it is, I suppose it's from that way, you learn it like a language. So it was a little bit later than, than most people. Um, so, uh, you know, I would sit with Frey. I went to boarding school and there were certain girls that were just good at music, right? And yeah. some of them could play by sound. Yeah. And those are the ones I would just, I would look at with eyes wide open. And I, I'd always go to the music room with, rooms with them and just ask them to play for me because I, I have so much respect for people who can just play music. Mm. It's such a gift. It's, and, you know, it's, um, I'm by no means a, a virtuoso performer or anything like that. It's, um, I can hear it in my head. And in the very early days, definitely I'd hear it in my head and the frustration would be, I can't actually play it down. I could, I could play it at half speed or quarter speed. Mm. And, but that's memory and learning, learning the keyboard, learning the, the, the motions and things. And, and, and that's another thing. Um, you find most composers tend to write on piano or on keyboard. Or, yeah. And there's a, there's a, there's a very different skill set writing on that or playing guitar. You find most people play guitar. They very, very quickly pick up doing cover versions as mm-hmm. doing other, other people's tracks because you're learning certain patterns and you play certain chords and, and you go on like that. But composers, you, 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 I don't know. There's just some sort of interaction with, a, with a piano or the, with a keyboard. Um, most composers end up doing that. Yeah. Or yeah. They, they always end up writing on keyboard. They might be like Mark Kamen or whatever, who was a, a clarinet, you know, his main instrument was clarinet. Yeah. But he writes on, yeah. on, on whatever. Yeah. So then, 
so what did you study then after school? Um, I did film studies. So I went, um, it was also in a period, there was there was no real degree that you could do mm-hmm. in, in film studies and that. Um, but I you could l- have done music. You could have studied. I could have, but no. But I, you see, but, so the, by the time I'm, I, okay, so I sold, I'd, I'd bought, I had a bicycle that I then, just to get around, I actually saved up and, and rebuilt, uh, bought a really old little motorbike, 50cc, and rebuilt that myself and, and got that. And uh, when I bought it, I think it was in terrible state and it can do 75Ks per hour maximum. And I rebuilt <laughs> it and I thought, that's great. And then it could only do 70. So I obviously was not a mechanic, but <laughs> uh, could do 75 downhill with the clutch pulled in. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I had that bike and then um, – like I said, I was just dabbling and I was I was more DJing and just love of music at that point as well. The same side, I was always very, very good in science and in sciences. Science, uh, not so much maths. I was good at maths. But but biology, science. Biology and science. Yeah. And I loved science. I still still do. Um, I'm a closet quantum physicist, does it? Yeah. Oh, my God, I love I've quantum physics. I've got my physics. telescopes. At home Is it? Like, yeah. yeah. So, but, um, and I was actually sort of like my – School career, especially high school, what are you going to do? And, and all the aptitude tests was always – it was coming back saying, and I, I've got I've got the actual ones at home, and it's got there. I'm scoring hectically high in arts, and I'm scoring really high in sciences. And they didn't know what to do with that. They didn't realize, I think, you know, whoever was marking the guidance counselors in those days, yes. they were going, this, these are – Diametrically opposed. You can't be this. And they were just saying, didn't you know, follow the sciences, follow the sciences yeah. sort of thing. So right up until standard nine matric, I was thinking of like going to go and do. And, and for, for the foreign list, uh, listeners overseas. Because like, yeah. now I'm in South Africa. I never know how to address everyone. Because so for all my, li- yeah, that's, that's your last year that's of school. Last year of school. Yeah. A levels, O levels yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Um, and right up to then, I was going to go, I actually really wanted to go and become an astro. Astronomer, astrophysicist. Yeah. There wasn't even physicists so much in those mm. days, but astronomer and, yeah. and do astrophysics. Um, in the end, music had taken over my life to the degree that I maybe didn't get the the the, the, the qualifications or the, the marks I needed in my maths sort of side that yeah. I needed. But uh, I did finish a full higher grade matric, um, uh, whatever. And but it was just the pull of music and the pull of feature films and that. Now I remember the guidance counselor. There was no such thing. I didn't know there was such a job as being a composer or a music writer. I didn't know there was such a job as making movies and things. We were. That's what I mean by sheltered. Out in Benoni, yes. there it was like you went into finance or you went into medical doctors and things, yes. or you went into accounts. Yes. Those, those were your careers mm. options. There was like three, mm. and there was a, you know. Um, anyway, so I left school. That's where. Um, and then I went to – I actually enrolled in what was then the film school at Wits Tech because yeah. there was no – you asked about the music. So at that point, I had no formal training in yes. music. And to get in anywhere at music, you had to have a grade 7 or a grade 8 piano. And okay. I had nothing like that. Oh, because so you I couldn't taught go and study. Yourself. I taught myself. Yeah. So I, I and, and in those days, I still couldn't play very well. I was I had all the ideas, but I was still really learning my yeah. way through it. Um, sold the motorbike, bought my first synthesizer with the money from a motorbike, and went to – I uh, went to Wits Tech, but there was such a low intake. I think it was only four of us that, mm-hmm. yeah, they closed the course down. Yeah. So then the head of department that year set up his own. It was one of the first sort of privately run film courses, yeah. thing called Television Learning Academy. Yeah, obviously, it doesn't, I don't know, existed for about four or five years. Yeah. But I was the first year intake on that. We went there and there was this great group of people, all misfit sort of creatives like us. And I went. Where but was that? I, that was in Randburg, around the yeah. corner. What in, was it called? Uh, Television Learning Academy. Yeah. Um, okay. And so I went to that, 
Um, but I had a problem because now I'd, I'd got a deferral from the army. They'd called me up. But because it wasn't a registered, like a, a, a proper registered mm-hmm. course, they gave me one year. So I spoke to uh, the owner guy, uh, the dean or whatever, and the guy running it, Rob, I think, and um, said this is He said, well, we'll make a plan. So I did the BBC sound. I said I wanted to do major in sound. So I did the BBC sound course, which he was like just – you know, bolting on as part of his course offering. Yes. And I did the three years in one year. So I passed my three-year diploma in one year. Because you were so clever or because? Just because I'd, I'd been playing around with music and, no, okay, and things so, like that. So, I mean, so it was what it's, it was it's just quite an accolade passive. that yeah. you did. Yeah, 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 yeah I think so. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. <laughs> you can say it. <laughs> no, I was, I was very happy with it. I actually wanted it. I'd much rather have studied for another two years and, and drilled like a student yeah, and so, whatever so than go into the you, army. You but, crammed it in, yeah. in one year and then yeah. you went to the army then and I had, shaved Then your I went head. to the army, shaved my head, and they placed me in because um, I'd applied for the film unit. Um, I somehow didn't get into the film unit, but I got into a spin-off film unit, which was called Blenny, and it was in Pretoria, and I rocked up there, and it was six, seven stories underground in a nuclear-proof building that was Whoa. built in, in the 40s Well, or isn't 50s. that good for sound? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we went down there, but it was also, you know, it was, that, it was that whole period, end of apartheid, so there was all this horrible stuff going on, and we so were like- So was it when, 90? That was 1989, 89, 90, yeah. yeah. So we went to, um, we had to go in there, I don't know if I'm, in, in the loud, I'm Say any of these things, but yeah, we went in there. And we had to, we, our sort of remit was we were supposed to be um, collecting not propaganda, but but archiving news footage and things about this whole thing. So we, at the same time, the UN were, were handling the um, the the Namibian situation mm-hmm. with them getting independence. So we got the UN vehicles through. They were all that sort of stuff. That was where I was exposed to the first Apple computer. I got out of the UN vans. I pulled these Apple II computers out, beautiful, and we all just sat there, and I started playing around on this. And that was it. No training. It was like there's a mouse. We'd never seen a mouse before. Yeah. And move this and move this, and you double-click. Oh, that's what happens. And so that was like state-of-the-art back it then. It was state, state-of-the-art. I mean, it was yeah. 89. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the second generation. But what was there. your mission to – so you were underground. So we were – well, we were underground. That was the office underground, but we were – uh, recording all TV broadcasts around the world and obviously locally. And then there was all, there was all those horrible things, necklaces and things and things mm. at the moment. And we were having to edit those up and put them in, just archive them, put them into, I don't know what, for what reasons or whatever. It was just really record keeping. Yeah. News, news bulletins and things like that. The other thing we had to do. But so which, why was this for the army? Well, the army was, it was, it was almost a military state at that point. Remember, it was it, it was mm. it was kind of like uh, there was it was a state of emergency. I think it was probably fell under that. Mm. But the other side. So here's the flip. This is how the world works. You got but this, that was during apartheid, not end. Well, it was during. It was, it was ending because it ended yeah, but, while I was. But it ended in ninety four. Yes, but it, but um, the agreement Nelson Mandela came out of uh, when was he released? Ninety. Ninety four. Yes, but the the discussions, the, the army, the, the repercussions were already hitting in the army because I went okay. in on a two-year intake. Yeah. While I was there, they dropped it to one year. So mm. I actually did 18 months or 20 yeah. months or something. I didn't do the full yeah. second year, which was great. But this is the difference. While we were there, um, so I'd gone into the army. I was in mm. Volfus Bay, and it was it was hectic. It was like I ended up in Potchefstroom in artillery. Mm. And that particular year, so you had this divisions in the army then. You had, I was in Poch. And there was this almost um, faction growing to actually go to war, to go to yeah. civil war and say, we're going to stop this. And they were trying to train up the troops in, in all of us there. And we were just conscripts going in. And there was uh, there was 5,000 of us in that intake at 
pot to stir in that yeah. year. And and we were so short on rations and things. I think we, it had it was made. You know, there was supposed to be about two thousand or one thousand five hundred troops there. And it was five thousand enough, and it was hectic. We were starting to get. They brought in special forces guys to start training us for real, real war. And in the meantime, I'm phoning um, the my. Commander, the, the now the, the highest rank in Potchefstroom, that was a lieutenant or whatever, yeah. and he was running the show. Yeah. Young guys, 20, yeah. 23, 24. Jeez. And, and I want to say, there was a boss sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> There's another way you so can crazy, explain. So crazy guys, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Drinking and, probably lots of uh, brandy yeah. and coke. And, you know. and um, at the same time, so I'm finding this commandant now, the, the, the guy in the, who I'm dealing with in, in Blenny to say, you know, where's my, he's got to send an instruction to get me through there. This is now three, four months into basics and I'm supposed to be getting out now. And, um, he's, he said, no, I've sent the signals. I've sent the request and I've sent two or three of them. He said, I don't know what's happening. And that's where it really pushes you to, it pushed me. I, I'd learned a lot about myself then because I realized I was never going to get out of the situation if I didn't do something. Yeah. Two of my, um, squad mates were in the in the tent with me. Were expats. They were so they actually worked at telecom and they were expats. So mm. they had to do basics and they got had to do three months and then they could get out. Yeah. So they actually had their papers and they were going to leave that weekend or something. Mm. And I spoke to them and and yeah they were going to go. So I formulated a sort of plan and I after roll call one day I had dug a hole under the the um my bed in the dirt and I lay there and covered covered up. And then they went out and I crawled out the back of the tent and I took a lieutenant's uniform off of the wash line that was behind the tent and I put that on and then I walked around like I owned the place. Yeah. And I walked into and I went around and I found the signals office and I walked in and I said, hey, I'm looking for this, this trip Alan Richards um, signals to go to Blenny in Pretoria. And the guys sat there and they turned around and said, no, the signals machine's been broken for two months. It's not working. It's, so I realized it wasn't, wasn't going to come through. So I went back and I Jeez, and I did yeah. a deal with these two guys and I said, okay, I'm taking a big chance here, but I'll buy you a case of beers if you can smuggle me out. I'll get in the back of the, the car. So I got in the, the boot of the, the car that they drove out and I just prayed that they weren't going to be checked wow. on the way out of the base. Wow. And we drove out of out of uh, Potchefstroom base in 1989, May Jeez, 89, yeah. and went to Poch Town, got out, got into civvy clothes, Put the whole thing. And then there was this complete switch over in terms of the what was happening in the world at the time. I'd been in this thing that was honestly training you for war. Mm. And then I got into um it was a Friday afternoon, arrived back here in Joburg, and I immediately phoned the the commandant and I said to him, um, okay, I'm here, I'm in Joburg. Do I need to come through now? And he's he was like, Yeah, no, it's Friday. Um Come through Monday. And then he yeah. stopped and he says, hang on, Monday, Monday is a public holiday. Come through on Tuesday. Yeah. So I go through and learned very quickly. His, his career, his passion was skydiving and he was using the army was there as his personal skydiving thing. He skydived <laughs> every single day of the week. He would go and skydive and all he wanted us to do as employees or, or yeah. you know, in his command is he wanted two people every day to go with him to film him skydiving. So oh, we, we How did you learn that? What's that? How did you learn that? His thing, his passion was skydiving. Oh, yeah, did very you quickly. You get you? there. He, he sits down. He says, right, this is what we have to do. This is what we have to do. You need to be here. He openly let things out. Like he says, you should go and check in at the base over here and, and tell them that you're here. 
mm. with a wink, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. Like, don't go and check in. And <laughs> if you do come in through to the office, I'm telling you, you should wear your uniform, wink, wink, sort of thing. So from that day onwards, I was there with, um, it was the same intake as Cusper DeFriss. He was in the same thing. Yeah. Um, Who's he? Sorry. He's one of the local uh, comedians. Oh, uh, yeah. He was quite a big comedian. Sorry, Cusper. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still have to get to know the locals. Exactly. Been out no, of the country. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, there was a, there was a, obviously there was a, quite a creative little yeah. thing put in there. Um, but I got into this. And, and but just it, hold on. When you did crawl out, yeah. surely they're going to wonder where the hell is this dude with his. There were so many of us. And um, it was straight from there, it was straight onto the field of just marching up and down all day long or whatever. Yeah, but surely there's roll call. You've got to make your bed every day. Da, da, yeah, da, da. We did, I did it after the roll call in the morning. Yeah, but then they're going to wonder who's the dude with this, who, who belongs at this bed. No, because I did the roll call, and then then the guys walk out, and I've got my, the rest of the group in the, the yeah, tent. But they there's... smuggled you out. Oh, there from there. Yes, yeah. oh, no, I'm pretty sure they they did miss me after that, but I don't know. There had been <laughs> off off the record. There had been 27 suicides just in the the month that I was there. The last month I was there, that were all wow. covered over. So um, really, maybe I'm just one of those statistics, you know. So. Oh my God, that's yeah. unbelievable! Why in that month? It, it was horrible. It was really, really hectic training. Um, really? Yeah. It, it, Can you like just give me? I mean, we're well. Like, do you know? So, it's just so freaking weird that we. I, I said to my husband yesterday. I said, "It's just really weird that there's actually a war right now. Mm. Like there's war mm. in Russia. I yeah. mean, Ukraine. Like, it, so I, just I mean, little things like." Um, you, you, I don't, there's the thing called route marches, which is normally, if you look at it as a, as a con- controlled sort of training exercise, it's yeah. great. You're supposed to go on a route march. Um, we would, we would go on a route march. Um, is that whole break you down to build you back up sort of thing? Mm. Um, and I'm, uh, the one route march we went on, I remember it was, look, you've got to be trained for this sort of thing. It was a new moon. So it was pitch, pitch black out in the, the bush. There was nothing. And we were walking and the guy fell down and broke his leg. It popped out, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. They didn't, no one was sent in to help. We were then told over the radio, you sort him out. So we had to Carry. find, basically strap him to a, a log and a, and a branch that we found and strap him back and pull him back in. Um, then he went to medics and so on from that. But there were, there were cases of like, um, just constant, almost mis, Treatment of, and it's a psychological. The exercise and the pushing is one thing, but the constant. Um, we had one, one instance, uh, to give, this is how bad it got. By the third, the second, third month in basics. So you now have what's called the, the, the first long weekend where your family can come out and visit you. Mm. Now it's like sacrosanct. It never ever changes. You, you mm. know, we were all lined up on the field. Um, family is now driven from Joburg to Poch, which is what, 200 k's away, 150, mm. 200 k's away. They all and they all parked on the other side of the fence there, and they lined us all up and they made us do march and put on a bit of a show mm. sort of thing. And then they just announced, "That's it. We decided we're cancelling the the visit. All the families, everyone, go home. We're taking them." And then they made they started, you know, really stuffing us up in front of everyone. So it was just that mind that you you've spent three months waiting for this thing to happen, three months trying to get mm. there, three months trying to you know get through. And did you even see them? You saw them, but you couldn't. Well, you, you, you saw them, but you, it was just a group of people. You didn't really oh, pick out. God. I can't remember if I picked out anyone or yeah. anything. But then it's just like, oh, we, and you don't know when the next time you're going to be able to see families because they just shut it down and they say, well, that's it. Um, uh, sleep deprivation was a big thing they did. So mm. um, we'd go for four weeks sort of thing where you're operating on two, three hours of sleep a day, and that's broken sleep because it was like – 
days and days of messing around and saying, right, you can now lie down and go to sleep. And, and basically, you learned very quickly. You never take your boots off. You, you, you're out in the bush. You're not, you're not in any yeah. tents or anything yeah. at this point. And you lie down there, and this is a training for war. And literally 10 minutes as you're lying there, as you're dozing off, thunder flashes and false bombs and things go off to wake up, and then they're running around again, and you're carrying your trunks. trunks so they sleep-deprived like you as well. Yeah, so there's a lot of, there was a lot of that sort of sleep uh, you know, sort of training sort of thing. It does mess with people's heads. It gets to the point where you will do anything. Like um, a guy, some of the guys found a puffader, a snake, and they went and put it in the – the lieutenant's sleeping bag because there's just no no your your mind goes into this thing there's no um right or wrong or bars or you know mm. you just don't do certain mm. things there's so much what happened like, to the lieutenant Did no he? no he found it and they, they shot it and something and yeah. but he was then you get stuffed up because he was like oh you guys are messing around and trying to mm. take me out and um yeah so sure on, so, yeah Sure. But um, Okay, so that that's – so now I understand it. So that taught me a lot about myself in the sense that from this very sheltered upbringing, yeah. having to deal with real-world situations mm. that you haven't got control of and, mm. and go, okay, you make a plan to get out of yeah. it and get the grip yeah. and, and make something happen. So tell me, how did that that, that time mm-hmm. and then the next time when you well, when you were underground in those, you know, stories oh, it, underground, how, no, how, did, how did that play a part now in who you are now and your music? Well, even okay. So straight away into underground became a creative thing, and a creative thing again. Because, like I say, the part of the remit was to collect all this this um, news footage. Mm. Okay, and that was just running under the scenes, mm. but no one was really believing or doing that. It was just a maintenance thing. But one of the things we were told is we had to make shows, or we had to do some shows about the army. Yeah. Um, and I remember at that point there, I'd heard it was towards the end of the year, and there was an advert on the Gunston Five Hundred in Cape Town surfing competition and they mentioned there was one national defense force uh uh what you call it uh con- uh contestant yeah so i went to the 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 major and i said to him the commandant and i said listen this is it can we go film it and he said yeah absolutely so we went down you mean there was a there was an allowance for someone yeah from- i think he was just looking his his thing he had to show that we were making some shows mm. But um, I mean, the the Gunston Five Hundred said it's, oh, no. it's open for a place. Or? Well, I think we just got hold of them and said, "Okay, we want to come down and film it." And yes. the the guy that was running the the, the event at the time um, said, "Absolutely fine." So we went down there. Same thing. Didn't check in at the base. We just stayed at friends' houses in civvies and went down to uh, Bloberg Strand every day to film. And then went to Clifton the other days that we weren't filming or whatever. <laughs> And we, we printed out press badges. So we just went as press and we yeah. sat in the press thing and we filmed all the, all the stuff. Um, we got back, we edited the show and then it sat in the archive. So I sent it off to the Gunston 500, the guys that organized it. And I got a nice little letter back from him saying, cause we were, I'm young. I, am, I was probably, I wasn't even 21 yet. I was 20, mm. 19, 20. Mm. Um, and uh, he sent a thing back saying, it's wonderful seeing what the youth are doing. And it's really, it's a very fresh approach on the, on the, you know, on the, the surfing competition and that. Obviously, it's not at the same technical standards we mm. need for broadcasting because we were using what equipment the, the, the army had at the yeah. time, you know. Yeah. And um, it was a proper editing suite and things like that. But, but that was it. And, mm. and learning the ropes. And I mean, I'd gone through it, just doing what I really wanted to do go and make films, go and make movies, yeah. go and make music. Um, I'd already, I see already then, I hadn't even constant. I'd gone through film school because it was one way of doing music mm. without mm. doing without going into do classical music training. Yeah. But that opened me up to like there's this whole world of writing music or doing the soundtrack and the, whether it's sound effects, foley's, all that sort of thing, but doing it for for uh, films, you know. So so okay, so and then 
when you got so t- tell me now in a nutshell from from when you did get out to to today just so i can see the picture okay, in a so nutshell and then i got out of the uh got out of the army finished the army mm. then it was now like okay i'm starting i'm going to look for a job and um it was that period there was bop studios in Boputitspana. yeah it was the worldwide it was made in in the industry it had made noise about like this is going to be the best studios in the world yeah peter gabriel was involved again and all yeah, these yeah. sort of guys and and i really wanted to get a job there um i applied and uh Drove up there, and um, I just met my future wife at the time, and and we drove up there to see. I don't think she was very impressed with the area and saying, thinking we're gonna have to live out here. But anyway, <laughs> I was just seeing the studios. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But we arrived there, and I'd made this appointment, and no one rocked up for the appointment. So we'd driven out all the way there, and there was no interview. But at the same time, literally about two or three weeks later, we heard all the stories about. The because that there was a whole back end. I'm not sure of all the details, but the the actual studios were funded out of the Bopatswana pension fund. Mm-hmm. It was a few hundred million rand at the time that we okay. used to build the studios. So there was a, and then they were raided, and all the gear was taken out, or some of the gear was taken out, and they had oh. special custom made. Each mixing console there was in those days was about five six million rand each. You know, wow. it was a huge expense on these sort of things. Yeah. Um, but uh, so that didn't happen, and. It, the universe made it not happy. No, same time I came back through here and I went through. Uh, I got a I got a job first at uh, partly it was a government thing called the Bureau for Information, which changed its name to South African Communication Service. Mm-hmm. And I went in there and I actually I got a job there to run their sound studio. Yeah. Their sound engineer just left, yeah. and I got this beautiful room. It was an amazing, amazing studio. I walked in and it was like, "Here's the room. Do you know how to run it? We don't know anything about this." And I looked and I just said. I know everything in here. Don't worry. And then they closed the door and said, good, we've got a mix you need to do for three o'clock this afternoon. I went, okay. And I closed the door. That was and I the day in. of your interview. Well, it was like I'd had an interview and it was like, yeah. And then I went through and they said, it was really a test. It was like, let's see if you yeah. can do this. Yeah. And I sat down and I knew the basics of it, but there was equipment that was so high, you know, high end that you didn't get trained on it yeah. locally. You'd yeah. never come up. I'd heard the names of these things, but I hadn't seen them. And I looked at this and worked it out, figured it out, did an edit, did it. And it was all on tape in those days. No digital, it was editing mm. tape. Put this thing together, did the mix, put it through, and they loved it. And I started working there. Um, that opened up my first, my very first ever commission as a composer because 1991 they did a, it was the 1991 census, mm. which was actually run by South African Communication Service. Mm. And they came to me and said, um, this is what we wanted to do. Uh, can you do it? And I had enough sense to realize at the time I said, but yes, but I'm hired as a sound engineer. Writing music, because I hadn't, I knew that there was obviously other fees and rights involved, yes. is not part of my job description yet. And they went, no, that's right. So can you go and get quotes and find another no, someone else to write it, which was your way of doing research in those days before the internet. So I phoned around and I got quotes from other composers and I was starting to learn the industry. Oh, these guys that are doing this are making are that. making it's it's yeah. their industry. And I got quotes from them and I saw these line items on the quotes and I, and I learned, okay, so that's a standard fee that they charge. That's sort of mm. things like this. Mm. And put the, the quotes through and said, listen, I'm willing to do it as well. If you, And they came back and they said, I mean, I think at that point they said to me, it was a massive windfall for me. I was all 20 years old and they said, okay, you can write the music. I think the, the average quote was about 22,000 rand at the time, which was huge. Hey? Mm. I mean, I think I was earning 500. I was earning yeah. 500 rand a month or something at the time. They said, if you do it for 18,000 rand, you can do it. I said, absolutely fine. It was more than money I was going to make in the entire yeah. year. So I wrote the music for the, wow. the 1991 census. 
and that was on broadcast and everything. What and is ni- the nineteen ninety one? It was it was, it was the government census. It was the last proper Seriously? census. Seriously, yeah, it was a proper census for South Africa. But you wrote the music for it. So it was the, the campaign. So I wrote can, them. And yeah. that is, can we still see that or hear that? I mean, I have looked sides. for it. I haven't. I mean, that was done on tape over there. It was a terrible sort of everything was. It was the first generation. So who was digital talking graphics. in it? No, when I say it was, so it was an ad campaign for the census. Oh, okay. So, so it was like yeah. that sort of thing. It yeah. came up with this funny logo, a 1990s, looked like an 80s type logo. So yeah. that's 1991 census. And it was mm. like, you no, know, a 10-second, 15-second music sting. And then there was a bed that I had to do. It was about three minutes or something. Yeah. That if they had it on the news, they'd have it playing behind where they okay. were talking about the census. That's amazing. Like that. So that's that was your first, like, gig. First gig, yeah. That was, that was the I first And I mean, that's literally gig. as you stepped out the army, though. Yeah, well, you've got to make money. But where, I mean, yeah, so like what what keeps beautifully surprising me is how you are such a go-getter. You, it's like you, you know, roll, look, I know when we're younger, we're a lot ballsy mm. and we do things that we look back now and we're like, oh, my God, I would never do that now. But you have always been like this. Yeah, except, like I say, it's, you, you say, you, I look at myself now and what I'm doing now and I look at myself then. And what I did then was almost just natural. It's mm. much more calculated now because yeah. you, you know so much about the past yeah. and what can go wrong and what yeah. can – that you sit back and you're actually a lot more careful about things and you try and calculate it through. But that's yeah. something I'm dealing with at the moment. I'm going, I actually need to throw caution to the wind a little bit yeah. and just get moving with things again. But, um, yeah, uh, the go-getter is more, more from the fact it was absolutely it's, – it's not even a conscious decision. It was the passion of doing – it was like I didn't think about can I do the music? Do I know how to write it? Am I good enough? It was like this is all I want to do. I just want to write music. Someone's going to pay me 18,000 rand was an equivalent of 400,000 yeah. rand today or something. Yeah. And so yeah. at 20 years old, I'll pay you 400,000 rand to, to write the music track for this. And I'm going, I don't care what it, I'm going to make this happen. And you just go and do it, you know, so. No, but it's not all 20 year olds have that gumption, even when they really want to do something, you know? I think so. Definitely. Yeah, okay. Yeah, maybe. But, yeah, so anyway, I worked there for a year or two. Then, um, like I say, it was actually only about a year, year and a half. Mm. Um, and like I say, I think back now, to me, my time there was forever. It was like I wasn't getting I wasn't getting further enough. I needed to go further in my career. Mm. I was just doing uh, these sort of like – we were like making um, documentaries, little documentaries that were great. Uh, we went down – actually, I got involved in the shooting site. So one of the best sort of experiences of my life, we went down at that point and stayed in um, – it was October, mm. about October 1990, 91, mm. one of those. went down to uh, Cozy Bay, but that's before there's eh, – there was nothing there. Yeah. So there was a place called Bunganek, which was the Natal Pox board at the time. Mm. It was their little cottage on the beach on Cozy Bay called Bunganek, right on the beach. Beautiful. And there was nowhere. So we went down to Sudwana Bay, and then at 20 years old, I was given this – Range Rover, what's it, Land Rover, yeah. Land Cruiser thing, with all the gear in the back, and we drove up the beach for 100 and something k's up the beach, across the rivers and crossing the rivers to get to this place to go and film the turtles, the leatherback and the, wow. the turtles. And we spent three weeks there on the beach. It got rained out, so we couldn't get back. The, the, the yeah. rivers were flowing. Yeah. And we were on the beach with no one else just clipping and living off the sea, fishing in the, the you know, getting fish out the sea to live in Brian. Yeah. And it was amazing. And um, had that sort of experience. And then went back and did the post-production and did the sound. And I wrote some Who music for that. Who were you working for then? That was them. That was South African Communications also, Service. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it was a great experience. Mm. 
But And I look back and I go, geez, I could have carried on there for a lot longer. But for me, that year and a half that I was there, there was like so long. And all I wanted to do was get into the music industry and start making, do recording bands and things. Um, over that period, I met um, some guys that uh, basically I ended up in a small little band called, I'd played in a few, Helter Skelter and, and all the little things at the thing. And then I played in a band called Running South, yeah. which uh, became Sugar Drive. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know if you. No. Yeah, okay. But, but one of the, the big fact bands that of you the nineties. Also in a band. Yes. Like, well, so you did. Every musician's in a band at some point. Well, in I don't life. know. But you weren't singing, or were you singing? No, no, no I wasn't singing. Yeah. Um, I was playing. I was playing keyboards, yeah. synths, and keyboards. Uh, it was a rock band. It was okay. so it was. Yeah. It was two guitars, bass. Um, <laughs> guy. No, all the guys. I'm still in contact with all of them. Yeah. Um, and they became quite a big band locally. Mm. They had quite a few sort of top top 40, top 10 hits uh, here in the country. They were, unfortunately, this is where life throws the curveball. Hey, they, they, I did remixes for them and I did uh, releases and remixes once we got through because basically what happened was I'd, uh, my future wife, well, my wife actually, we got married at that sort of point. She just fallen pregnant and mm. was like, okay, now I need a real job. Yeah. Okay. And I left the band, but so we'd formed, uh, Sugar Drive about probably a month or two months before I left. Yeah. But I left the band we, on good terms and I said, you know, I'll always be, we'll always be around and yeah. keep in touch, but I got to go and have a real job now and work nine to five. Yeah. That's when I got the jobs at, at, at uh, Video Lab sort of thing. Yeah. But I was in this band. Um, they went on, uh, I mean, on a sideline sort of thing, like I say, in terms of luck, when I'm getting back to what's happening in life, they were doing really well here. They had a, like I say, a number one, number two hit in the country. They had several. They had, I've got all their albums. They had, they had, I think it was three or four albums together. Wow. They they launched. They released here. Um, they were this, they were just before, and they were contemporaries of Vonnebohm and and Prime Circle and the guys mm-hmm. that, that went up uh, there. But uh, like Sugar Drive, they they had backing a little bit of backing. They got invited when Limp Bizkit were in the country. Yeah. They supported for for Limp Bizkit. Mm. Um, Limp Bizkit said, uh, "That's awesome. Come follow us around. We're going to Australia next and everything." And they went. We'd love to. They try to get some money. I think they got a paltry little 15,000 rand for mm. the record company or whatever. They went over and they played one show in Australia, I think in Sydney, with Limp Bizkit. Yeah. Limp Bizkit said, you've got to, got to stay here and come. They got back with the record company. No more funds. They had to leave. Their visas weren't. They had to come back to South Africa. And guess what the band that then started supporting Limp Bizkit was the Gorillas, And they became world famous. So they went around the whole world with them. Wow. So I was thinking, you know, if Sugar Drive maybe went around, they would have been the, yeah. the Gorillas of the time. But th- that's what happens, you know. So Do you, do you regret that? Do you have regret at that point where your wife said, I need you to get a... No, she didn't say that to me. That was that was okay. my sort of decision. Back yeah. to control freak sort of thing. No, I don't have regrets. I love the band thing, but uh, I was not 100% comfortable in it. Yeah. Control freak thing okay. again. I, the music that we that I put out, I wanted it to be my music. Yeah. I didn't want it to be yeah. a band's music. I, wasn't, yeah. I was writing, I was adding lines and things there, but it was a real rock band where the, the music that was being put out was effectively created out of a jam session between the guitarist doing yes. what he wants to do, the bass doing, and you, you, you filter mm. and you get something mm. that's kind of working. Yeah. Um, I was sitting there going, shit, I, I, I'd rather have mm. uh, the guitar doing this and so the drums doing this. So you went where you ended up doing what I wanted yeah, to do. Yeah, I mean, we always, like in life, right, something happens and because there's like a human, because that's mm. how life works, a human comes to you, not a freaking yeah. angel. You know, I mean, that's debatable. But yes. I mean, it often comes in a, in a few human form yeah. and then you can often then put blame to that human form because they said they bought the message, but actually your heart wanted it anyway yeah. or didn't want it. Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, okay, cool. And then, so then you went to Video Labs. Yeah, and – 
But work- that's Video Labs is what you started out telling us about, right? Yes. And that's where you then also developed your own like contract business. Yes. And that's the work you've been working alongside. Yes. Well, you've been you've had your contract business up until now. Up until now, it's still yeah. going. It's changed well, it's a lot business. in the last it's few not years. It's contract business. Yes. Your business. It's yeah. me. It's, yeah. it's it's gone. So it started off just as me, and mm-hmm. it was one of the biggest challenges I had as a composer and as me is and. I've I've had clients telling me this many mm. I mean I've got several at one point several thousand clients on my sort of books. I had I was very very successful very quickly. I've uh, I nineties two thousands so I've got several. I've got about fifteen or twenty can awards. I've got a gold. Uh, what's it? A great can. You've been grant. to can. I haven't. I haven't been to one awards show. Why? Because I was always working when the awards were on. I was doing you the dumbass. next. <laughs> I'm also, uh, this is the other thing. I'm actually very much an introvert. I don't like the exposure. I don't like the So this image. is like I don't special like that sitting. you're sitting with <laughs> yes. me. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so. Uh, I can't believe you didn't go to Cannes. I've got, I've got 176 Lurie Awards. I've got, um, I've, I've won lots of awards. But that's also, it's got so much to do. Talk I, to me about the awards. I okay. want to know. Well, this is what I'm going to say. So, um. There's, so before you actually talk about the awards, mm-hmm. one thing you said just now, you said, yes, that's my business and it's – and you said, and it's me. Yes. And you, you pointed to yourself and you, you put your hand on your heart. So hold on. And w- I just want to know, like – and I felt the pride and, and that's your story and that's what you talk about often. It's, it's my music. Why is it so important to explain? To be me. And okay. why is that so important for you? Okay, so what I found definitely in my case, it can be different with other people. Mm. And I have uh, – there's other colleagues I know that ran a very different type of business. Yeah. But I wrote music and I did soundtracks. Whether I'm actually just yeah. doing a soundtrack and an ambient scape, my clients always said there was something in it that was me, was Alan Richards compared to just soundtrack. Yes. So I was winning these awards and things on that. I would then have – I now want to scale. I want to grow the business. So I put another studio in and I had other people. I had lots. Obviously, you're getting mm. really su- uh, successful. So I've got other wannabe or, or up-and-coming composers yeah. or sound yeah. designers thinking, getting hold of me and saying, we want to work. We want to work for you. So I, I employed these guys over the year, mentored them. And I never really had a success where I could hand over the reins or get someone else to yeah. start writing because all my clients came to me to get my music. Yeah. So even if I handed over something to, and he was writing something great, they'd listen and go, I had them saying, but this is not you. Mm. So then I'd have to take it over and then rewrite or adapt. But was it more important now looking back? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not just looking back, you're in it still. Mm -hmm. But is it, is it more important for you to put out you, to put out me? Or is it, is it more important for you to put out you because your client wants you? Um, well, it's a little different. Dif- dif- my priorities have changed a little bit now. Um, I'm not. I'm not. The whole. I'll get to it. But the, the, the game has changed in terms of what we can, uh, what your clients expecting, or what what type of work is going mm. on. So I find what I'm offering at the moment is is not is not in demand anymore here for a multitude of reasons, and I'll get get into them. Mm-hmm. But basically, yes, it's. Uh, I've got to the point now where what I'm doing is much more about. Um, my creative output out of it rather than the the client's creative thing. Like you said, want more yellow. Yes. You're doing your yellow. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a t- period in your life where that's right. You know, yes. 10, 15 years ago, I was in the right place. I mm. had, it was in a, in a, in an environment. I was making, I had a business. 
this was my career. I was really grateful for being able to write music and, and run studios and do sound. And I was involved with the, uh, because I actually built up, uh, it was a founding partner in Bladeworks post-production, which was the whole, um, we did all the graphics and video mm-hmm. editing and so on. So it became a, a very big sort of, sort of thing. Um, and I was very grateful being able to, that was my career. That was my yeah, life. Yeah. Um, now a lot of that has changed. I'm back down. I'm very much more just me again now. I've, I've, mm. uh, all the, 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 when I say towards the end, it became a very corporate thing. All your clients in the last 10 years, clients have become so much more corporate. In, yeah. in the early days, we were buffeted, buffered, you know, a little bit by it because the agency, or the, 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 even though it was a, making a TV commercial, it was kept very separate. The business side was, okay, we'll sort this out and the accounts and things. But in making the commercial, the people that were there making the, de- the uh, decisions were creatives. Yeah. And their input was creative input. It wasn't, mm. wasn't anything else. It's, it, over the years has now become very corporate and, and it's become very much more a thing of like, do you tick these boxes? Yeah. Then you can get the job. It's tender-based systems and things mm. like that. So it, it um, it's it's gone completely away from. Geez, this is what Alan can do creatively, and this yes. is what I can offer as a creative solution mm. to do. I tick the boxes for all these sort of things, mm. and can am I allowed to work mm. on the job? It's sort like of thing. the tender. Yes, which yards. Yeah. Um, so, and I've and I've accepted that. Like yeah. a lot of things in my life in the last few years, I've had to just literally accept. And I, I fought it a long time. And I went, no, no, there's got to be there's got to be some mm. value in what I give to this. Is and at the end, I go that value is still there. If the world doesn't see the value in it anymore, that that. Part of the world has changed. That uh, yeah. I've got to accept that, and I've got to find where I can find or yeah, offer value again. Yeah, you've got to again. then find your own other another channel yes. where you can express that. Otherwise, yeah. we die yeah. if we can't express ourselves. Yeah. Right? Exactly. So, so to go then, so tell me the awards. Okay, so well, I've got multiple. There's, um, I've won quite a few sort of uh, best of best composition worldwide. I got for BMW for a BMW thing called uh, um, the Skid Pan was the one. Uh, the other one was. Um, Thing, hypnotist mm-hmm. in I'm talking about this is the late 90s so really old 98 99 2000 sort of thing yeah uh, skid pan was just to give an idea of how the world or how agencies and how creatives were thinking in those days yeah multifacetally across everything not just making a little film um, so the, the the BMW is driving around on a skid pan uh, and it's just handling and saying it's got this new active control. What's at the stability system yes. so it doesn't skid. And yes. it's, it's going and it says, but one of our major competitors doesn't have this, and it shows. And it's they've taken the emblems off the car, but you can see it's the new. It was at that stage the, the new. No, the A4, the Audi, oh. and the A4 goes and it skids and it skids. So I creatively now that was a massive amount of sound work. No one even realised yeah. it, but they didn't want to have skids. They wanted something musical and sort of thing. So I ended up recording. Um, opera singers, nuns and things, and, and sampling nuns and mixing that in with a skid and doing sound design. So that every skid was like, oh, like this. And it was the skids, and there was this like um, score that I'd done, which was very sort of uh, quite threatening, dark. Sort of, it was, I actually took, I think, some, some, uh, from some movies at the time, 12 Monkeys was out at the time, and it was like this ambient sort of dystopian era, because mm. it was all shot with the steely grays and all that, the BMW at the time. And then it ends up in the pa- camera, tracks back, and it's Says well, it seems like one of our closest competitors can't, and the Audi skidded, 
but it's made the Audi rings in, in, in the emblem on the skid pan. That is brilliant. And it flighted. Now, in those days, it was uh, what's still now not so big anymore, but um, carte blanche. Your newest, biggest ad was always flighted Sunday night yes. between carte blanche in the, in the thing. It's like so the most popular Yes, TV. at the time it was yeah. a, that journalism, you know, mm. real – um, investigative journalism yeah. show, 60 minutes type thing. Yeah. So that was the ad and went out uh, between that. Uh, it was like the prime spot. Monday morning, all hell breaks loose. The Ogilvy, uh, the agents for Audi on lawyers, everything gets pulled off air. So now BMW are really upset. We've lost all the money we've spent on this. And the agency said, no, this is going to according to plan. And what happened was that just debate about whether it was allowed to have uh, yeah, of course that advertising more like that attention was six months in the news in fact ended up having its whole segment on absolutely can't blotch itself about were you allowed <laughs> to do this so they add they paid well for one flighting and they got six eight Free. months worth of yeah and over that period then suddenly Merck came out with their ad with the beat the bends on the um, yeah, yeah, on yeah. the Chapman's Peak and they said guys we were actually the first to put this on a car and they go you didn't make an ad about it and it was like <laughs> so it was all that sort of thing. So Brilliant. it's really nice to be involved with all that sort of stuff yeah. going through. Um, yeah, for, for a long period, I did most of the BM ads, most of the… So Mer- carry on with the, the awards. awards. Finish for- so that's it. And what about on, and on the film side? I love film. I've, I'm like a big okay, film, film fan. Film has always been a passion side for me, and mm. it, it takes up a lot of your time. Mm. So when in the really busy days, there was… And there's, from when I started, there was definitely more of an overlap between, okay, you're a sound engineer, a composer. Yeah, you do film and you do TV and that. Within about five years of into my career, it became a very separate thing. It was like, yeah. are you a film composer or are you a TV yeah. commercial composer? Yeah. And um, because of that, I didn't really get to do too many films in the early days. I'm doing a lot more now, and, and that's mainly, so mainly what I'm doing. So what are you doing, doing now? Doing. So I've just finished um, – there's quite a uh, – I've just finished a feature for – it's a little independent feature. Yeah. For It's uh, done from the States called uh, State of Desolation. Mm-hmm. It's like a dystopian yeah, yeah. Um, zombie type Sci-fi movie sort or, of thing. Okay. Um, semi – not a horror so much, more of a thriller, but mm. uh, that I've just finished. I've just finished a thing at – it wasn't the best movie, but a great – Really quite a dark comedy, like a heist thing from Zambia called Black Dollar. Um, the local ones I've done, uh, I've done a one called, uh, quite a few lately, one called Hex. It's, these mm-hmm. are, most of them are actually on uh, um, Netflix. Netflix and on, uh, what do you call it, multi-choice yeah. uh, DSTV and things yeah. like that as well. Uh, the Furnace is on Amazon Prime Worldwide. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a, a struggle type, what's it, a survival movie. Yeah. You'll get stuck. You know, running in in the bush. Oh, so, okay, yeah. Um, but uh, Simbamba was a which was released internationally as a horror as horror it's under mm-hmm. the uh, the lullaby. That's also that's actually quite a good horror movie. Hex I did about two years ago. That was um, also a very independent little local movie here. Yeah. It was a little horror. Um, quite a few little horrors and things come up lately. Before that, I'm not um, surprised. <laughs> yeah, um, before that, there's there's ones there's I did the original Bakhat one and Bakhat two. There was um, what's this uh, Blitz Patrolli. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of all these movies. It's about I've done I've done I think I've composed I've worked on thirty movies composed forty five that I've done sound yeah. sound mixing and sound tracks wow. on. Um, and then, yeah, so. So I was thinking about this. I don't know why. I, I have this vision of me. I'm putting something in the dishwasher like a couple of nights ago because I love filming. I've acted in some of the local mm-hmm. sitcoms here, right? Scandal. Okay. Um, and, and in a couple of films, but like independent short films. Um, 
But I often wonder, like, when you're watching these films, like, how does someone, how do they just, like, get this music out of a file in their head and place that music at that particular point in a film? You know, like, I find that so incredible. Okay, it depends on, on the process. A lot of editors and, and directors will sit and they'll put what they call temp track down. So they'll lift music from, like, now I can I can imagine there's a lot of, if you're doing a, a sci-fi type film, mm. guys are going to go and lift the music that was used on June uh, or something like that. And they'll, they'll just put it there as a temp and go, that kind of works. And then they'll lift mm. something from here, maybe even go back to Star Wars or something. And, yeah. and they put it down and they get, get the feel of something going. And that'll become the brief to someone like me as a composer and say this is the, the, okay. the genre, this is where we want to go in. Yeah. They've edited. So the energy and the pace and everything is correct you've got to now write your own music in that sort of genre that style but keep that energy and pace which is the one way um otherwise it can go completely opposite and like this zombie one that i've just done the state of desolation purposely he sent through everything they edited to music i'm sure Mm. but he sent through and he said i'm not giving you any music no sound i want to hear just what you do on it yeah so then then it becomes the same sort of process i think kind of but in reverse it comes from the composer rather than from the director so i sit there and i go i look at it and i go and i'd seen movies recently that just really really jumped out at me you know that particular one i'd watched uh, annihilation mm. and that end section with with the um the confronting the alien sort of thing and yeah. it became just a music track there was no sound effects which was this highly electronic sort of thing mm. now the electronic thing didn't translate to I tried it and I could see it wasn't going to work with this type of movie yeah. it, was, it wasn't as stylized enough like the, the Annihilation thing but there were some nice organic elements of some little guitar lines and things like acoustic guitars that I again brought in quite a small section of orchestra. Mm. So it didn't ever, it never got too big. It never got to the big philharmonic sort yeah. of type thing. Yeah. It was a small, small sort of section. So it always kept it intimate, which really worked. And I, I sit and make those decisions. These characters are alone in the wilderness. They, they, mm. they're traveling through. It's not a big thing. They're not fighting this massive army or anything yeah. like this. It's just their little internal struggle. So, you know, that small sort of, uh, when I say orchestral, it's not always, it's quite electronic as well, but it was very organic. So it mm. felt very natural on, on, on the thing. And you develop the theme and, and you work on the themes. And there's all little tricks of the trade, or not yeah. tricks, but it, it's, it's natural formulas that you need mm. to you learn. Now, part of that has been self-taught in mm. just exposure, just looking and seeing yes. what works, seeing what works. That's where TV commercials, even though you're only doing 60 70, 80 seconds or 30 seconds mm. or whatever, very difficult in 30 seconds. Yeah. When you've got to tell a whole story and go through, which which I was exceptionally good at. I was told I was very good at telling um, a, a long narrative in yeah. a very short space yeah. of time, like the edit. Um, that teaches you how to get in a very, very short, in one and a half, two seconds, get an emotional reaction yes. out of someone. Yes. Um, and I'm not talking, not talking about horror jumps and things. I'm talking about more subtle emotions like um, pride or, or happiness and that mm. sort of well, thing. Well, an emotion to cause a reaction. Yes. That's, all, that's what an advert is. Yes. <laughs> and, and, there's this, and, and there's certain things which I've had a lot of times. You'll write, and there, there's something that works really well in music mm. um, on, on picture, is if you've got a happy scene, and you put very happy music on it. It actually is quite cheesy. Yeah. But if you put melancholy, sort of slightly sad, emotionally mm. sad, mm. that if you listen to that music before, you go, that can never work on a happy scene. But you put on, and you can start pulling out now, there's emotion, there's nostalgia in that happiness, and there's pride in that happiness. And suddenly it becomes a movie. It doesn't become yeah. a corporate, I'm the happiest thing on cheese it's like amazing. that. So 
and there's reason. Sometimes you need that cheese. Well, no, mm. cheesy is a heavy word, mm. but but uh, you need that sort of just straight neutral, happy, happy on happy or sad yes. on sad and, sort yeah. of thing. But the more creative stuff is the juxtaposition between what the music's saying and what the story's telling, and so on. And yeah. it all becomes it gets becomes very psychological. And I've been in in approvals and things where you you'd swear we in in everyone's in major psychologists going and analyzing why you feel this if you've watched this at the beginning of the movie. What's your take on this scene yeah. and so on? Yeah. Like that, you know. Um, so why? I mean, I, I could actually talk to you for hours because I just I love I love this creativity and and you're so passionate about it. It's just so freaking cool, right? You mm. just you want everyone to be as passionate like you are about mm. whatever it is they doing. Yeah, that's what humans should be, right? Mm. Is passionate about what they do, and that's also the other reason why I do the show is just mm. to, you know, if people can hear your passion, they and they hear your story, and they hear how you got to where you are. You know, there's no miracle. I mean, I know you say miracles and you've said luck. You mm. said the word luck. Mm. And I actually I want to go back to and well not go back to, but I want to ask you something just now about your quantum physics and mm. a comment you made to me on, on WhatsApp yesterday when I said looking forward <laughs> to seeing you tomorrow and you said and I said, Well, we'll leave it to the universe yeah. to decide what we're going to talk said, about. And you yeah. said, Well, the universe and I aren't really on like, I don't know, good talking terms. Yeah, I haven't seen eye to eye lately. Yeah, so I wanna get on I wanna get on to that. And and I, you know, I know you've lost your wife and and like that must have had a huge impact on your work as well. Um, and you just life, you know, mm. right? Mm. Um, but um, yeah, just closing off that, you know, it's just it's so beautiful to to be able to hear and be a part of, you know, me being able to share your story now, just to be a part of someone's life. Like mm. I'm a tiny little speck in your life, but of of being able to reflect on your life mm. and being able to give you the chance to to reflect on it you know mm -hmm. it's just it's beautiful um but well, I still say, I hope this is interesting because I have no idea why anyone's life interested in Oh, my God. Well, this, look at us. I mean, I don't even know how long we've been talking. Yeah, I know my, I know. my phone, the phone's going to cut off just now. And thanks to everyone who's tuning in on Instagram and you guys listening on the show, um, you know, on the podcast show. But let's just, you know, let's go into sort of mm -hmm. these last years of your life because yeah. we, we do need to to move towards closing out off. Sure. And I don't want to just close off. Mm. Um but talk to me about that comment and, and yeah, just, you know, because part, part of life is loss and everyone who follows me knows my story. Okay. Um, I'll start off with a little nod back to the hair thing. So yeah. my wife got me at one point and it's still on my fridge, a little fridge magnet. Mm. And it's got a – because I'm a Leo. Yeah. And it's got a lion, male lion there, and his hair's all over the place. And it says, your hair was put on your head – to show that you're not in control of everything or you can't control everything, something to that effect. Okay? <laughs> you see, there's something about the hair. I, I love that's that. What I but, I mean, that's exactly it. So um, I didn't – you know, I made decisions through my career and that almost reactively. I never sat down and consciously said, mm. I'm going to do this now because it's going to lead me to this, going to lead me to this. But I did always have an end goal in mind, and that end goal has always been I want to – I wanted to continue writing music in some form. And for a long period, it was like, that's it. I want to get to Hollywood. I want to write these Hollywood big scores and that. My priorities there have changed a little bit now. I think it'd be actually way more interesting to write what I really want to write, mm. whether it's on a, like this, like on this little indie feature that I was given carte blanche to do whatever I like mm. on. It was awesome. Or if it was, if it's on a big movie, I'm definitely not going to turn around, but I want to have that sort of. That I'm putting myself out there yeah. and, and writing something that, that I'm not in, I'm not in instruction sort of thing. Yeah. But because of this control factor. So what, what happened is, um, 
like I said, the industry was changing over the last few years, getting more corporate. So we, I was looking at, and with my wife, Andy, we were looking at, at certain things uh, going forward and going, you know, we need, really need to simplify a little bit and, and, and not shut down the big studios, but try and find new forms of work that the, the industry is changing. It's not going to be so driven by com, uh, commissioned work coming yeah. in. Commercials. I mean, uh, the big change there is that everyone's watching Netflix. No one watches commercials anymore, especially mm. locally. And that's uh, any local sort of work that we're doing or even international has just been sucked up by core sort of head producing areas internationally, whether you're yeah. doing a Super Bowl ad or whatever. Yeah. So they make one ad and that gets spread out throughout the yes. entire world. Yeah. Um, the, the days of us making local ads here that's, that shipped out to the rest of the world is gone. Um, uh, internet, no one watches that. So the only ads that are being made are really, um, the, your, your direct informational sort of things like come and buy this soap here, pick and pay. And you're not going to hire a composer to write music for that. You're what not do you mean do- internet? No one watches that. Oh, you mean because people I know, skip past I'm the ad or? Streaming ads. So uh, okay. uh, there's no, yeah. if you're watching Netflix and that, you're not watching ads. So the only ads yes. that you're watching is on, on terrestrial services mm. and any terrestrial service sort of thing, your, your client base that's watching that, the only ads that they're going to be, well, you're not going to be advertising the Louis Vuitton handbags or BMWs. No, on but that. I will say when you do when you do go past a good ad on 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 YouTube, you actually watch it. Yes, yes, it actually it, sucks you exactly. in. Exactly, a good one. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, but that's also this is where it gets difficult now. Is that in the old day? Well, I say old days. Mm. In the previous model, you were tuned in. the 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 broadcaster had a definite, or the the client knew around uh, this TV show. We had three and a half million viewers or we had 30 million yeah, on this. Yeah. So that, there was a channel and there was a budget that was put forward. So mm. that budget paid for people like me or professionals mm. and so on, mm. all working on this to make yeah. it happen. Now you go on YouTube and there's no idea whether this is going to be picked up by the public or you can watch it or not. Yeah. So you can spend a lot of money and have no traction or you can spend very little money and have a huge amount of traction. Mm. So that's the model everyone's following. Yeah. Spend as little money as possible and hopefully we just have a viral hit and everyone yeah. wants to watch it. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't support the the production industry like mm. it used to. Mm. Um, budgets across the, the, the whole range have, have dropped by more than tenfold yes. in the last 10 years sort mm. of thing. But people are making – there's always – you adapt to the new mm. situation and so on. I was sitting at that point and going, you know, I've, I've worked in this so long. I, I don't know if, if commercials are never going to be what they used to be. I'm not going to be doing two or three a day like I used to. Yes. Um, they have dropped. And the, the, the capacity there has is, is dropped massively mm. as well. Anyway, we were looking at these sort of things. But then out of the blue – so beginning of 2018, I'd just done this movie called Simbamba Lullaby, which actually got quite a big release in the States. Yeah. Um, actually, over the period of this this time in 2018 was uh, over the Oscars. It wasn't in Oscars or anything. It was nowhere near that sort of mm. caliber at that point. It was still a little indie movie. But it was being launched and it was actually played at the, the one of the special old sort of theaters as a launch. So we were invited to go over. So I, we'd, I'd never been to the States. So that was it. I said, let's, let's, let's go on a nice little trip. Yeah. So I booked a trip for my wife and myself, and we went through to we'd never been so we, because we were going. I said let's spend you know four three four days in New York. Mm. We stayed there, experienced New York. It was great, beautiful. Um, not not a place I'd want to live. Too many high buildings and things. And, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was great vibe. And then we went to LA, which we thought was amazing, and I hired a nice yeah. did the proper thing. I got a nice little convertible, what's it, Mustang, and drove around. Did this. Pacific Coast Highway and we went to Universal Studios and we did this whole thing and then we did the launch and we, we were at the launch for this this thing. And then as a semi-surprise, she knew about it by that stage, but um, her brother had immigrated to Canada uh, in 2002. She hadn't yeah. seen him since then. Yeah. So um, 14, 15 years. So 
we went up and met him in Canada and we did a two week road trip through uh, British Columbia, through the mountains, uh, sort of did this whole thing. Mm. It was a holiday of a lifetime sort of thing and met up with him. And we actually went so well. She said to me, I can't believe this is too good. I, it's, and, I, and, I, and she was always like, no, this is too good. Something's going to go wrong. And I said, nothing's just, it's, it's fine. Nothing's going to go wrong. Anyway, so it was my, my saying is it'll all be fine. It'll all be fine. I always say it's always again, it'll all be fine. Anyway, we got back from that holiday and we were back probably a week or two. Even while we were over there, she said she was getting, she was feeling a bit dizzy on occasion and she had this little itch in her finger. No, don't worry about it. Mm. But I think, you know, I think back now, I I wrote it off. I didn't worry about it. Mm. I think she was more worried about it than she let on. And and Mm. anyway, we got back. um, And then by April, yeah, April 20, April 2018, we went in. we were actually at my sort of endocrinologist chatting to him, and he said, why don't you go go and check this out? So we went through to a neurologist, and she said, okay, and they did MRI scans. Um, and that was more for the dizziness, not for That the was for dizziness, like, yeah. like kind of C. And um, we did these MRI scans, and then very quickly, then she didn't answer straight away. I was trying to get hold of her and hold of her. And then when I finally got hold of her, it was about a, a four or five days in after the scan. She said, I need to see you, but I'm just doing more research. We're trying to see what's going on mm. here. And then when we did go through, she, she said, that, okay, they've they've got this thing. There's definite um, lesions on the, right in the center of the brain, tiny little patch mm. here. We think it's probably MS, but – and then Andy got quite uh, got upset. She said, don't worry about it. It's my job there. She's got lots of patients that are living with MS, you know, yeah. and, and, and still living productive mm. lives. So we'll sort it out. But – we're going to start treating it as MS. We have to start treating it now. So she started treating. Um, that was the beginning of uh, end of June – uh, sorry, end of April, March, April. So 1st of May, we started treating. She went from walking around by end of May, 30 days, she was in a wheelchair. And I took it – we were constantly going back. but they were. So we had a biopsy booked in for the end of May, next mm. scan. They did the scan, and whatever this thing was in the brain had now grown from a little patch in the center to a 10-centimeter lesion spherical in the center of the brain, right in the center. Um, but there were now patches that they could do biopsy on. So they mm. did a very quick biopsy and it turned out to be, I mean, the guy came out and we were sitting there at uh, Sunning Hill and he came out and he said, uh, we were a little scared. She'd had a scare 10 years, 12 years before on mm. a melanoma. So I was mm. a little, we were a little worried that it was metastasized. Yeah. He came out and said, it's not the melanoma. And I just went, oh, thank God. And he went, no, it's much worse. And uh, he just said, something called glioblastoma multiform, completely incurable, and effectively she's got six weeks, if that. And um, they said you could probably do longer if you go to an oncologist or something, Mm. but it's really quality of life. You're just going to, you know, that's it. So that was a massive shock. I mean, I still, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's, she, she was my life. We were together for 29 years. Yeah, you met young, huh? Met met very young. And like everything, you have your ups and downs through your relationship and things, Mm. but we both stuck together and was. Well, you wouldn't be human if you didn't. Yeah, exactly. You'd you'd be an alien, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'll try to. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so, yeah, so she was diagnosed. She decided because of the three kids, she said, no, she wants to spend more time. So we did the full chemo. She was explained then that they're going to do radiation therapy, but the radiation therapy was at levels that would kill her within three years. But, the cancer mm. would probably kill her before that. I initially went through and I said, that's it. I'm, I'm going to find a way to fix this, you know, my control yeah. thing. And I did research, 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 and I came across scars. And basically it was a, 
average um, prognosis is 15 months. Mm. I came across one guy in the States who was a doctor who's taking 200-something pills a day who managed to live for about seven years Yeah, that was done it. So yeah. he did the same um, – he put that through as a possible sort of uh, solution or, yeah. or, or treatment. But anyone else who tried the treatment, no one had had the same. I think some people had made it into second year, made 20, 24 months sort of thing. Yeah. And I was still accepting, no, I'm going to find it. But then I had this very weird – and I'm naturally very scientific, naturally. But I, always, I do believe there's something more than just – us, yeah, there's, there's got to be, there's, mm. there's reasons for that as well that I, that I have scientific and just belief reasons. But I had this, and it's the only time I've had, ever had an experience like this. I was asleep early morning, just, you know, lying there. And I was dreaming. It's very obvious what this dream is, but it was mm. more than dream. It was absolutely vividly real. It was more real than reality now. Yeah. And I was in this desolate wasteland and there was this tree and this tree was me, was my life and our life. And it had been, it was fallen over and the roots were sticking up and there was this creature eating the roots. Yeah. And I knew it was the cancer and I ran over and I was going to destroy this creature. I was, I was furious. I was going to take it out. Yeah. And as I was running over to it, I heard Andy's voice say, Alan. And I ran and as I got to it, she again, Alan. And she actually woke me up. Yeah. And I woke up and I looked at her and I said, I was about to save you. And she said, I know. And I went, and then she said, I'm sorry, because I was, you know, she had to go to the toilet and she was waking up and I needed to get to the loo. So I then got her, and I just, I went back and I just had this, this overwhelming dread. I just felt that's it. It's 100% sh- certain that my life as it was is over. It's gone. There's, it's not like that anymore. Um, it had this absolute def- devastating feel. And it, um, I mean, still when I think about it, I still, mm. I still remember how real that felt, but, um, and I said to her, I, and I wanted to go back to sleep to see if I could get into this dream again and, and do something about it, but never, ever again. Um, and that was it. And, and she didn't even really remember because it, it was, it was, we had this communication right through to the end, but it became a, um, charades type thing because her, it's, I, I learned a lot about how the brain works. Yeah. I mean, just in, and this was not literature. It was actually, I've, I, I did video. I spoke to, I took video of it as well to try and learn it because I'm yeah. always like trying to you yeah. know, fix things. But she would, she'd be watching TV. We'd be lying there and, and then she, I've got the coffee machine up and she'd want tea or coffee. But then she'd say, beam me up, Scotty, because we'd just been watching Star Trek or mm. something. But in her mind, she's saying, beam me, beam me up, Scotty. But in her mind, she's saying, can I have some tea? And she looks at me like, why are you not understanding me? I'm saying, get me some tea. But she's saying, beam me up, Scotty, or the other way around. And then occasionally she'd, she'd suddenly start speaking Afrikaans. And I mean, doesn't come from Afrikaans family or anything. And, and like, and then sometimes she'd actually hear it and hear, like suddenly click and hear some beam me up, Scotty. And then like, what the hell am I saying sort of thing, you know, yeah. that sort of thing right towards wow. the end. So we went through that. And then, yeah, so, uh, she, she lasted 10 months and passed away. I, Managed to, I say, time it right. Wasn't timing right. I got my oldest son up from. He was job down in George. He came mm-hmm. up for the kind of time that he came up for the week. He was there for a week and a half before she passed away. My youngest was still at home. He just turned mm-hmm. uh, nineteen, twenty actually. He just turned twenty, mm-hmm. literally about a week before she passed away. And um, my daughter was there, so we were all there yeah, at home. And that's and beautiful. So, so it was. A, it was a. Uh, I want to say perfect. It was the dead right ending, but it was an experience to go through something. And it solidified something in me in the sense of like, and I, I said it to a few people. Uh, there was another weird coincidence happening. I'll tell you about now, but um, it's 
solidified the fact that I believe there is something after. Do you? Because from the simple selfish reasoning of I can't imagine this universe without her in it. So if she's died and she's physically not here, I have to believe she's still somewhere. So, yeah. you know, um, then there was this, this follow-up to then the normal sort of uh, the normal grief process. And it was really uh, it's still. So do you, so, do you believe in, in many lives? Um, possibly. I, 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 this is the thing that, you know, you can read up on all these and everyone, it's always stated as fact as like in this. No, but I, it's you, when, when someone has gone through a traumatic experience mm-hmm. of loss, mm-hmm. they have a different awakening yes. to existence. Yes. So that's why I'm curious if you do believe in past lives it's weird because, and okay, future so lives. I was brought you know, up. Or, I was brought up in not a heavy, but it was a Catholic environment. So yeah. there was no such thing as reincarnation. It was almost evil. You know, yeah. Okay. But um, no, the, when I say brought up like that, we not rebelled, but we it wasn't a heavy religious sort of thing. By the age of in early teens, sort of thing, we'd made our own minds and we didn't go to church anymore, or anything. But and you went through life. And as I've gotten older, you've become a little bit more spiritual about when you're thinking about yeah. things more more deeply. Um, but I, like I said, I've always had this. I've always been very content that I know that there's something else uh, right yeah. from doesn't matter when. What I have opened up to a lot more, in, as you say, many lives or whatever. And I think it is individual. I think. There, there may be people that come and only come here once. There's maybe people that come here a lot of times. Over this period, I did a lot of watching. There was a great um, YouTube thing attacking it more from the science thing, a guy called Eben Alexander. I don't know if you've seen Eben. it. Eben. Eben. Yeah. Eben. He's actually yeah. uh, an American. Yeah. Basically, in a short story, what he was, he's a neuro neurologist, neuro, yeah. neurosurgeon, spent his whole life in pure science, didn't believe. He actually was like, that's it. You know, we're here, mm. we die, we're gone. Mm. Um, he had an event where he got a major infection in the brain suddenly one morning mm. that put put him into hospital, put him on on reading, and they read his brain. His brain was he was brain dead for a week. Wow! But in that period of a week, he had this amazing experience of another life, another world, more real than here. Um, everything and being taught a lot of stuff. And he came back and he said, "Now it it had a real world ramification because he didn't know he'd lost a sister." In that one week, no, in his, in his before he was born, yeah, his his mother had had a daughter and they had died, and they hadn't told, and him. they hadn't told him, and he was shown this this girl took him through the afterlife basically, and he didn't know who it was, and we came back, oh, they were goose, they were doing they were doing um, what do you call it? Uh, his son was doing a, a thing for school about history, and they tracked down, they came up, and he got sent this photograph, and he recognised the photograph from. His experience, wow. and that's when he realised that this was the, the person taking him around the afterlife and so on. But it's, a, it's on YouTube, and it's, Eben, he's written a whole so book. It's Eben Alexander. Eben Alexander, and it's it's called um, Proof of Heaven. Okay. He's got a whole it's a book, but he's 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 got mm. he's got a, and it's a really really and it was really uplifting. It gave me a lot of things. I'd already by that stage. I mean, I've got uh, I follow quite a like I said on the quantum physics. Mm. I'd followed the whole quantum consciousness sort of yes. thing from um, uh, what's the scientist uh, Penrose. Yeah. Um, well, there so, are a few. Hey, yeah. these quantum physicists. So, yeah, yeah. So, and I do believe in that. I believe you know there there is there's more than likely physical structures or physical structures that allow the re- retention of information that we ju- we information machines we gathering creating living creating information that information can't be destroyed it mm. has to move somewhere and there's there's i won't go into now it gets quite deep but there's there's physical structures that can possibly we don't know how i mean we're starting it now with quantum computers but the problem we've got we've got to keep it at solid state 
ultra uh, low temperatures and keep yeah. things stable. Yeah. How does that work in the real physical world yeah. that you can actually exist? But I, I did, I spoke to Andy a lot about that. She was very worried about afterlife and things in this. And we have, you have these sort of really deep conversations going through this 10 month, 12 month wow. period and talking about it. And I just felt, and I did some research and showed her and I said, don't worry about it. There's, there is something. And in that process, I believed it beforehand but I believed it without believing it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Once you've gone through it, there's without, it it's a about feeling it. Yeah. It's, 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 when, it's, when it's in you that you don't have to even think about it. Yeah. It's like an innate yeah. understanding. Yeah. yeah. So that's the story with it. But, but the ramifications on that is you, you go through. So the, the other weird coincidence, I didn't watch TV at all. You know, I didn't. I shut out from everything. I didn't even eat for six weeks. I know it doesn't look like it. I didn't. <laughs> And it didn't make any difference, so so yeah, much for diets yeah. and that. But I just I couldn't stomach anything. Mm. Six or seven weeks or so. But on the day she died, um, Afterlife, uh, Ricky Gervais, mm-hmm. his Netflix TV series Afterlife was released on the day she died. I didn't watch it. It was the first show I watched. Why I don't know, but I watched it. I just had a calling for it about six weeks after she passed, and I watched this thing. And it's about a fifty-year-old guy. So I turned fifty. Right then. Wow. It's about a 50-year-old guy who was married for 29 years. His wife passed away of cancer. And it was exactly the same. But the weirdest thing was, I don't know where he did his research, but he he goes through the story and it was exactly the same as mine, but he was saying the same things I'd said to people. Like, you have a superpower. Nothing is – there's no reason anymore. You lose purpose. And I'm still trying to find my new purpose and whatever going forward. But because of – you, you you feel completely taken out of the world. There's, there's no reason for anything. You feel like you can say whatever you like. If someone upsets you, you just say to them, that's it. And not in a nasty way or anything, but you just, it's not yeah. important. Yeah. What, you're getting so worked up about this. It's just not important. And, yeah. and and there was all these sort of lines that he had in his in his dark comedy sort of thing that were going, that were spot on. The only wow. difference that he had, what I had a, a big problem or the big change in my life is over that same period over that 2018 while she was sick i was running my business from home and i had some business partners which i'd had to get in Mm. over the last few years because of current sort of Mm. uh, structures that you need to work for agencies and things and um they i'll just be diplomatic they they hijacked my company uh, about a month two months after andy passed away Wow. So I lost my studios, or the physical studios, or the, the client yeah. base. I've still got all those clients, but I don't have the studios anymore. So I lost the business at the same time as losing my wife. As, that's why I say that tree was was like this fall. And I already had my studio. I was working from home anyways. And I just looked at this as, well, I'll take it on. We went through litigation. I've got sort of a settlement from them and so on. But it was just something that happened, and it was a change of life, change of era. It was 30 mm. years of me running this mm. business, and, and it changed. But – me staying at home, so losing all of this, but the biggest impact on me, this is a year before COVID, is I sat in my house there, my beautiful, I call it yeah. my COVID compound, and you'll see yeah, why. Yeah. And my entire social circle up here in Joburg was my business, was my office. It was going every day and seeing my yeah. my staff. Yeah. Now I had nowhere to go, so I didn't yeah. have anyone to see during the day. No, fr- the, the, the one or two friends we had here in Joburg over the period of Andy's illness disappeared. So I had no friends around, and I, had no, I was literally sitting at home on my own for a year and then COVID hit Um, and at that stage the the positive side we'd settled the the deal on the business and suddenly I had no big rentals to pay no anything so there was a positive side to that as well and I sat back and it was really just a year the first year of COVID was me sitting at home just writing music for myself purely cathartic 
um, yeah, and doing my own sort of stuff. And now I'm signing. I've I've come out of it now, and I'm going. You know, trying to build, and I've got some exciting things on the go now. With with trying to get new mm. sort of projects off the mm. ground and that sort of thing. But it's it's a new world. It's a yeah, and it's also I feel like I had a time doing a certain thing, working for clients, and as much as I fight and I try and get that back, I've 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 reached out to all my old clients, all my mm. old contacts it's and things not, like that. It's not flowing in that direction, and it's not flowing. Yeah, I'm just getting funny, yeah? nothing working there. So I know, and yeah. I've I've so I've had to learn acceptance on first of all accepting what happened to Andy and yeah. the impact on my life. There was nothing. I had no control over that, mm. and then accepting what happened to the business, accepting what happened to now me trying to chase the old work and it's not happening yeah. and so you're just going and as I said that's where I got into I'm leaving it up to the universe but the universe and I haven't seen eye to eye properly okay. but maybe the universe knows something I don't let's let's so that's <laughs> a good that's a good place to close off yeah. on but uh, well I have an idea which especially with your you know your involvement with you know the composing and the your science background and you know, if I can putting all the dots together and the mm. quantum physics and 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 the holding of the memory and I don't know, I think there's something there for you. I don't know why, mm. but we'll discuss it another time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, on closing, yeah, I mean, you have had such an incredibly colorful life. You followed your dream. You followed your truth the whole way through. What, yeah, what would you say to to everyone listening now? Um, what would you say to them, you know, just yeah. – and, and I'm not talking about 20-year-olds who mm. are starting out. I'm talking maybe more about the 40-year-olds. Mm. Or What would you say to them about – like couple in with what you're saying about you trying all these things mm. of reaching back to clients. It's not flowing. And you're the kind of guy, if you listen to your story, it's flowed your whole life all the way to this point. Yeah. It, it's scary anyway. It's scary at 20 years old when, you, when you're setting out and you don't know what's going to happen, but mm. you just do it through passion and through pure bullheadedness, not knowing what mm. the future can hold, not knowing the implications. And it's even more scary when you know and you've been through all that and you go, geez, damn, I took those risks and I did that. But you wouldn't be where you are without taking those risks. So that's my – I look at it now and I go, I've got, to, I've got to take those risks again or new risks and different things, which is what I'm trying to do. Um, you just got to carry on going. Yeah, there's there's a few things, and people have said, just be true to yourself. There's going to be temptations in business and everything. There's, I think, uh, Richard Branson said, you know, the best way to do it is if you have a moral or a dilemma, and you, you're looking at something and you want to do, and mm. you have to do something, you got to look at it and go. Imagine if the world finds out about this and it's put in the newspaper tomorrow. Your decision you make now: will you be proud of that being published to the world or not? And if you are, then you're making the right decision. If you're not, if you think, oh, I don't want anyone to find out about that, mm. that's not the right way to go. So if you carry on making those decisions going forward, you can see what the universe unfolds for you. And I'm, I'm doing the same thing. Hope to see what happens in the future. Hopefully it gets more colorful even. So, yeah. Beautiful. Thanks, yeah. Alan. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Jen. So guys, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Share the show with all your family and friends. As I always say, sharing is caring. Go to the website, inspirationalinterviews.com and subscribe. Once a week, you'll just receive a super cool life story in your mailbox. Check out my Instagram handle. It's my favorite social platform, Inspirational Interviews. If you just search Jen Rod, you'll also find me there. Thanks for listening, guys. Super grateful to have recorded my show at Solid Gold Podcasts. See you on the flip side. Let's see where this song might